Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. What's good, Internet? It is not Monday. It's not Monday. It's Tuesday, October 31st, and you're listening to Waypoint 101. Uh, this is not the Waypoint 101 you think it is. It is not our second Wolfenstein episode. You can tell that because one, Patrick Klepik is not joining us today. Instead, it is me. It is uh, Daniel Rienda. Hi, hi. Uh, and it is our very own senior editor, Robert Zachney. Good evening, everybody. And we are here to talk about replicants. So we are here to talk about a spoiler-filled, fun, thoughtful, hopefully, uh, uh, retrospective, long look back at Blade Runner 2049, a movie that came out just this past month, uh, but that we've been kind of waiting to to get the free time to chat about. I think we've all been itching to talk about it as, as big fans of the genre, as fans of the original. Are we all fans oh, yes. of the original Blade Runner? Rob? Yeah, I think okay. we're we're pretty diehard. Like I just saw it the um the final cut on Blu-ray the other week. Okay. Uh well a few weeks ago at this point and was surprised by how much I did in fact like it. Uh yeah, you know, I still like it. It had been a little while and I was a little worried, right? That yeah. like this was yeah. going to be the 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 viewing when the ma- magic dissipated. Yeah, which is always a possibility and I I like a scientist always do my best to hold open the possibility that future experiments will reveal that my my past findings are incorrect, that like <laughs> hey, my tastes have changed. My I missed something in a film that makes me hate it. Um you know, and I think I think it's probably fair to say that uh, you're, you, there are lots of people who have very complicated feelings about the original film. I certainly do. It's, it's both my favorite movie and also one that I think has a lot of glaring issues, one that's hard to uh, recommend. Uh, and uh, I actually wrote about the context of, of why I love Blade Runner so much, the original, um, going into this uh, updated, not updated, this, this sequel um, and, and why I was so apprehensive about it. Uh, but then that movie came out, and I saw it. Uh, how recently have we all seen Blade Runner twenty forty nine? I think it was opening weekend, actually. Okay, that I saw it. Uh, and and yeah, just to go on what we said before, I've I've seen the original, two different cuts of the original in two different formats, including pan and scan on a CRT. <laughs> oh, that's how you're supposed to see it. That's and that's your most recent one. Correct? That was my like most recent. The... Well, no, actually, I saw that like two weeks ago, and then last week I watched uh, the. Uh, final director's cut the 2007 right, the cut, cut yeah uh with patricia so i i watched that movie like eight times a year or something ridiculous yeah I, it's probably the only movie that i have seen countless like uh, count, literally countless times and that i've seen it so many times i've lost count um i'm not a real watcher i'm not someone who like goes back to fond stuff and like digs back in regularly really um, there's just too much there's just too much good stuff that i haven't seen you know like yeah, there's a small collection, three or four things that I will rewatch. It's like Blade Runner, Home Movies, the TV show. That's a great show. Uh, um, it's my favorite TV show. I oh, think um, so I will rewatch something if I'm exposing somebody else to it. 
So, like, my rewatches of The Wire have only been like, oh, man, you haven't seen The Wire? We should watch The Wire this weekend. Um, Stuff like that. Uh, A couple of Gundam shows, but uh, mostly the very short ones, not, like, long series. Um, And then, like, one or two other movies that I care deeply about. But, like, there's too much I want to see. I want to see new stuff. Or if I'm writing about it, I'll revisit. You know, it's like, okay, if this is – if it's time to put the – the the studious austin hat on uh then i'll go back in and then i'll do deep dives but rob are you a rewatcher are you a yeah like um not quite compulsively so uh although there's definitely you know there's those comfort food uh movies that occasionally i'm going back to but like in general i think i i tend to revisit things a lot for for a couple reasons uh but the big one being that i am just not an amazing critical uh, viewer the first time around mm. or even the second like for me i actually start like getting so much out of those repeated viewings that it considerably deepens and changes my appreciation and understanding of a work so for me it's like if i'm actually going to like say i've really seen a movie or i really get it i need to have seen it a few times yeah uh which i'm a little apprehensive right because i only had the one chance to see uh to, to see 2049 and I've got a good dozen viewings or so of Blade Runner right, <laughs> behind right. me. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm eager to I, – I need to go see it again before it's out of IMAX in New York because it's a beautiful film, uh, 2049. I think it's like the thing that even the people who I think disagree with the content uh, of the film, the, the narrative content, the acting, the soundtrack, stuff like that, um, the, 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 the way it handles its themes. I have spoken to very few people who – don't walk away going, man, what a pretty looking movie. <laughs> um, and so I really want to see it in, in IMAX before it leaves. So so I will, it will immediately ascend to be being in the rare group of like movies I make myself go see twice. Um, yes. So initial thoughts. I guess let's just dive into it a little bit. And unless, unless someone wants to give a little more context. Um, in terms of expectations, maybe what what were you, what were you both expecting going into this film? Again, I've written about it. If you're, if you're curious a lot, my expectations <laughs> were. You can go read that piece. But I'm curious about for you, Danielle and Rob. Like, what were your expectations like? I probably had uh, fairly tempered expectations at this point. Um, for a while, I actually was going to movies and reviewing them, sort of as part of my mm-hmm. job. And so, for a little while, for a couple of years there, I was going to everything and seeing everything and sort of keeping up on movie, movie gossip and, you know, maybe not all of the movie gossip, but quite a bit of it. You know, I was going to the Oscar parties and, you know, taking, if not bets, at least I had uh, opinions about how things were going in Hollywood. So, I, I was sort of in that world for a while, and then I've really sort of mercifully stopped being in that world to some degree. But I can never turn off the sort of critic hat whenever I'm watching something. I always, I, it's almost as if like I can't turn off the part of my brain that's writing a review every time I watch something uh, with any kind of nerd factor to it. So that's always going to be part of it. But I, I had stayed away from sort of the hype regarding the movie. I had stayed away from previews. I had stayed away from, you know, teasers. I had stayed away from all the gossip and all that kind of stuff because I just, at this point, I didn't think there was anything that was going to top the original Blade Runner for me in terms of what it did well. Um, you know, right. basically, I, I sort of go back and forth in my head whether or not this or Alien, uh, the original Alien, 
which is my favorite movie of all time, by the way. Mm-hmm. Whether this or Alien had the best production design in any movie ever of all time. This forever. being 2049. <laughs> no, no, no. Sorry. The, the, the original, original Blade Runner. The, yeah, yeah, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Like whether or not, you know, basically yeah. I think those are two of the most beautifully shot, just gorgeously, gorgeously designed films mm-hmm. in terms of everything that goes on in the frame. I see something new every time. And that's why I can watch Blade Runner a hundred times and see something new in the frame Every single time I go. What's, what's interesting about that, too, is those are two films that they're deeply influential, but not um, like mm, deeply is actually a funny word for me to use there. Uh, <laughs> extremely influential, but not not deeply influential yes. in the sense that the depth of their production design, the depth of the visual iconography that they use, the the complexity of what might show up on the screen, the softness of some of those spaces, the clutteredness, yes. the, the actual lived-in senses are not often actually uh, dredged up and actually you know echoed. And normally what you get is big neon signs from Blade Runner, <laughs> flying cars <laughs> And from a Blade little bit Runner. of greebling, and that's it. <laughs> right, yeah. and then from, from Alien, you get like... Really, what you get is aliens, right? You right. get space yeah. marines. You get cool guns. Light filtered through fans. Light yeah. filtered but on, from both, actually. Some from exhaust. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, yeah. a, that's Ridley Scott's thing, that's a, Yeah, right? totally. He's um, like, you know what this lighting rig needs? Yes, a big exactly. turbine. <laughs> we'll come back to that, because I think that this movie does that super well, yeah. actually. Uh, yeah. The 2049. So what about you, Rob? What, are your, what were your expectations going in? Uh yeah, they were they were kind of all over the map. Uh, so I it, I have still not seen Arrival, uh, which I feel like is kind of a, a glaring oversight. Uh, but I was a huge fan of uh, Sicario, right? Mm-hmm. Which and, is to be clear, these are films from the the director Denis uh, Denis, Denis Villeneuve. Villeneuve, yeah, yeah. And um, so what I liked about Sicario is that there's sort of a he he has a very like icy cinematic gaze is mm-hmm. is the way i would put it like his subjects are not um you, you sort of regard your subjects at a remove there there's almost a a sort of clinical matter of factness right to uh to, to Villeneuve's eye and i thought that was really that like pointed in a positive direction for blade runner cuz i think to your point there's this danger with the world of blade runner that people will become mesmerized by the false glamour of it yes. uh you yeah. know by by the light by the imagery by by its uh you know sheer majesty and what i was sort of excited about with with Villeneuve taking it over is that's not really what he's like historically been into like he's got an eye right. for an image right. but he actually tends to underplay uh, rather than overplay, and so I was kind of excited to see. Like, not only is he an exciting direct director, but he was kind of somebody who I felt would not be excessively beholden to right. the original work. Like, the last thing I'd want here is like a J.J. Abrams character taking over, Fuck. Um, and being like, "Oh, just I'm the biggest fan. I just everyone on this team just loves the original so much. I didn't want that." Mm-hmm. Did you get it? What do you think? Oh man. Uh, <laughs> let's talk. Let's all right. Let's yeah. dive in. in. All right. So, I think uh, well, first reaction. Um, holy shit! Is the audio mix for the IMAX uh, loud? Oh, is it? Okay, um, I'll, I'll know that going in. Yeah, be careful. Like, I might actually. This is the rare movie I might actually recommend earplugs for. Okay. Uh, because like it was, I saw it in the. Um, <laughs> okay, quick detail. Uh, so around here in Boston, Austin, we have um this furniture store called Jordan's Furniture. Oh my God, that's mm-hmm. right. 
Are you familiar with this? Yeah, is, the, is this is this legend made it down down <laughs> the there? The I'm not. Is in the Jordans. I, yeah, I remember this. Yeah. So there's these two stories: Jordan's furniture, and he's like this eccentric, eccentric like furniture magnate, um, just selling like these are these are like several aircraft hangar sized like furniture stores. Um, like there there is a football field worth of sofas alone if you want it. Um, and that leads into the love seat room, which is another football field just of love seats. The other thing these stores are known for, each one has an IMAX theater. And each one? Yeah. Each one. Yeah. How many yeah. are there? There's just these two massive superstores, one north of Boston, one west of Boston. And okay. they're, they're, they're huge. And, uh, actually quietly, like the, some of the best movie theaters in the area, they're actually really well maintained well, IMAX no theaters. Seating, right? So. Oh, he believe me, he makes it a point. Uh, you can use the same Tempur-Pedic seating. Oh my god! That you can find on the showroom uh, at Jordan's Furniture. But uh, yeah, so it, it was it was an incredibly uh, loud mix. So use caution if you're going to uh, to an IMAX. But at first, I think what I really enjoyed about it is I felt entirely disoriented. This felt discontinuous from Blade Runner. And it wasn't afraid of letting me like sit with that feeling for a while, which I really appreciated. Like it established its own story and its own world, I think pretty well before really starting to show how it ties back to the original work, which Yeah, that's an interesting was point. helpful. Yeah. Um in that you know, it's a film that I mean, ironically, it actually opens on like let me put on the fucking like <laughs> hardcore fan hat, but it opens with a scene that is from that was cut from the original Blade Runner that was never shot. Um, the sequence of visiting the farm, the so it opens with with uh, Officer K uh, arriving at a grub farm uh, out on the the outskirts uh, of of I, I guess it's on the outskirts of California of Los Angeles, presumably yeah. in like yeah, slightly northern or, or, or central. Uh, California, um, this very like gray, washed out, uh, uh, like single home that's next to some some places where grubs, synthetic grubs, some sort of protein farm, basically, um, and and again, also huge solar panels uh, just dotting the the the, <laughs> the ground. And one, obviously, that is a callback to the oil fields that I talk about way too often um, when I talk about Blade Runner opening on, on burning oil fields. It's it's like do, the do ground... Do we want to talk is... at all about the crawl before we get too far into this? Oh, sure. What was we, the, I don't even remember not... the crawl. Oh, that's it's important. Been, yeah, that's it's good. been a month since I've seen it's it, okay. so like, yeah. remind me of the crawl. I mean, it's it's very similar to the first movie. It just kind of gives you that little bit of context. It says, okay, I didn't know it, it specific... says something about how, you know, Nexus 8s were the yeah, new yeah, replicants, yeah. which already sort of sets up that, oh, they don't die in four years now. So that's right. that's yes, an yes, important yes. little detail. Well, I mean, and like, then, that's, we'll yeah, definitely get into that as we talk about Officer K's living situation, because I think yeah. what was earned by the previous generation of Nexus models uh, is important, very, for sure. Very, very um, but the so the the two things right off the bat is like one it does literally reuse this this sequence of going to try to arrest this escaped repl this uh, this not even escaped but um uh, living in hiding for? yeah this replicant living in hiding uh, who is cooking soup like there's this in, like I just have such clear memories of the storyboards of the sequence that was cut from the original Blade Runner. Where Deckard was supposed to go arrest uh, a replicant who is a farmer who was living out in the, the outskirts of town, uh, cooking soup, uh, and like seeing that sequence brought to life 
but just like just a bit askew because immediately you re- you recognize Officer K is no Deckard. Right. Um, uh, they make it very clear right away that he is a replicant. Uh, they 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 say, you know, you must be one of the newer models. Um, and uh, he deals with this character, who is played by the former wrestler uh, Dave Batista, <laughs> yeah. really well. Um, uh, he deals with him very efficiently and very like coolly. I mean, he gets beat up a little bit too, but then it's just like, no, this is done. And he's kind of got an attitude, like uh, uh, Gosling's character, Officer K. It, it, um, he's like a Western anti-hero in yeah, some definitely. ways. Like, he shows up, like, he is a veteran gunslinger, an experienced killer. Yeah. And he Versus, just goes about it with, look, sorry to ruin your day, Yeah, but I'm here. If and it's the if, end. Deckard is the Philip Marlowe stand-in, uh, the the kind of like, you know, has had a bad day. He's not wearing his favorite coat. Uh, doesn't want to be doing the job. Uh, can't trust anybody, even himself. Then, then I do think that Gosling's uh, Officer K is a lot more continental operative. Oh um, my god, I'm so glad you went there. Yeah, of course, of course, right? Like, <laughs> is the person who who has cracked knees, who has pulled triggers. Ha- like has that professional experience and and disconnect at the start of the film, uh, almost disinterested in his own work. Right, um, he's a little bit Ringo from Stagecoach. If you want to, sure, pull that yeah, one out. Totally, yeah, totally, totally. Um, and uh, and then yeah, I think that the solar panels are great because it doesn't erase the the past. It it literally has been tiled over. Right, the oil fields have been replaced by just too many solar panels like so many solar panels that it feels like it's uh an act of contrition almost right which is the right way to think about the technocrat the tech technocratic way of thinking about dealing with environmental change yes. um and I, and I, I also established in in that sort of crawl is that it's instead of tyrell who has literally taken over tyrell's corporation is this guy neander Wallace, I think. Is Wallace. 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 Yeah, Neander, yes. interesting name. Wallace, very boring name, and I think immediately sets up the shadow of being in the shadow of Tyrell, right? Like, yeah. Tyrell Corporation is just more interesting as a science fiction name than Wallace, Wallace. Industries or whatever. Yeah. And I love that. I actually think that that is a small little thing, but I hope that that was intentional. Yeah, it's gotta be. Well, and, and something else in that opening is that there is a squalid griminess to everything we see mm. uh, in that, like, this farm, it's not just foggy, it's like in this miasma right. of just, like, it almost looks like somebody's burning white phosphorus just off camera or something. Right. Like, right. it's just this choking, thick white fog. Um, yeah, there's the grub farm where he's a farmer, sure, but, like, he's going into basically this, like, a uh, climate controlled like hab facility and like rooting around in this dirt for um for basically like juicy maggots. Right. Um and then his his farmhouse is just this tiny little like uh you know Quonset hut almost. Uh you know it looks very much mm-hmm. like something you'd find abandoned after a war. But I think what this further establishes is that Blade Runner that world tried to seduce you and overpower you. Like there were ugly and horrible things about it, but at the same time it was dazzling. Here, that veneer has worn away, either because of the catastrophes or just how that society has unfolded, but like this is not 
uh, a world where you're going to clear the burning fields and the city is going to unfurl before you, uh, you know, shining against the night. Right. This is a, you know, (laughs) this is a near, like, apocalypse adjacent uh, world. And I think that's an interesting difference here as well, is that, like, there's an ugliness to this to to the world of Blade Runner 2049 that um the original movie I think shied away from it it left implied right right you knew that under the glitz of the neon lights and the the snake dancing and the <laughs> the glowing monitors and the the fake animals like Okay, yeah, it's a fake animal. That means that there's no real animals. Okay, that's dark. Here, like, you, you get a little bit more. You get a little bit more of the grime. Um, you know, you get children enslaved. You get... And being sold, right? Like, you, you get a little bit more. And and their space is, is cramped, and you see them working. They're not just implied to, to be working. Um, there's a lot of those moments, I think, right? Uh, for better and worse. Um, I don't want to just do, like, a, a hit-by-hit, you know, a punch-by-punch breakdown here. Um, yeah. So it's like Danielle, what's one of the big things, like the big takeaways for you? What are, what are one of the topics that you're eager to talk about? Yeah. So there's, I have two major, major topics, and I'll start with the first one, which is the longer I've been uh, since seeing it, and I do want to see it again. Uh, and I and I generally am very positive on this movie uh, mm-hmm. with some reservations, kind of the way I was with the original. Um, yep. The number one thing is a parallel I see with actually the Star Wars movie from like two years ago, uh, The Force Awakens, mm-hmm. where it collapses a little bit under the weight of both expectations and being an homage to an original piece. Mm. Um, I think that this is a stronger movie overall, and I think Force Awakens is a perfectly fine movie. I don't think it's like a piece of crap or something. Uh, But that movie for me definitely would have been stronger if it held completely on its own, and I think that's true here as well. I think there are... I think that Harrison Ford is actually kind of a dead weight around this movie's neck in a lot of ways. I think that it went way too far into the whole Deckard thing and the whole, oh, Rachel thing. And I understand it needed a MacGuffin. It needed a mystery. It needed something for, you know, Officer K to kind of do as he's going about his business and, you know, trying to figure out if he's a real boy or not. But (laughs) I don't think it works all that well. I think it does weigh the movie down. And I think it weighs the movie down in a way that, There are a lot of interesting things that are hinted at here. I think there is a very interesting movie that goes into android sexuality and Mm -hmm. everything. That's the other topic I want to talk about, but I won't bring bring that up too much. I'm just bringing it up to say that I don't think it was done any kind of justice because to serve the rest of this movie, to serve Harrison Ford, to serve the whole like, oh, let's answer the questions of the first movie, but not really. To kind of go down yeah. that path, it ignored a lot of the genuinely fascinating questions, new questions. The new that stuff, it yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I definitely, so I, one thing I will say is one of the responses that I saw that kind of builds off of this from people was to say that they thought the mystery of the first film was more interesting than the questions asked in the second one. And I could not disagree more. Mm. Um you know, the the key question of the first film for a lot of people, the key takeaway is it, it begins with is is Deckard a replicant, you know, mm-hmm. especially in the director's cut and the final cut. Um, and then from that, what does that then say about, you know, human life, human life, human value? And even if he isn't one, then like, what does Roy Batty, what what do, what do Pris, what do these characters who are replicants and who seem to have a full range of emotions? In fact, uh, an enhanced range of, range of emotions. Yeah. Um, what does it say about about what we think counts as human? 
Uh, and I think that's a perfectly good question. But I think it's also a question that we've been asking ourselves for a long, 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 <laughs> yeah. long, like well before Blade Runner. Blade Runner is a great film, but like, you know, people have been writing stories with automatons that that take on human characteristics for a long time uh, <laughs> yeah. and have been digging into that the notion of like who, you know, who who counts and who doesn't. It's a, it's a, it's a nice metaphor for for marginalized people, for the disenfranchised. Um, it's It's been around. What the new film asks often is, where do we generate value from? What is the arbiter of what counts more generally? Not just is synthetic life valuable, but uh, is subjective value as valuable as what is presented to us as objective value? Um, which ends up being a very complicated question that I think the film does a good job of answering. But I think you're right to some degree that I think that the Deckard stuff complicates that by by being an appeal to things we think we already know. Um, so like when Rachel shows up, uh, when the, the new model of Rachel shows up and Deckard says, oh no, the real one has green eyes. Um, or I believe green eyes. Yeah, um, yeah. I think it's like a perfectly fine one-liner. I think Harrison Ford delivers all of his shit really well in this movie. Uh, I enjoyed seeing him work with Gosling, especially, especially when they first meet. Um, but I think it almost misses the larger point of the film which is like uh, the fact that she's different than the original model should not undercut the possibility that she could produce value for Deckard that she could be a person who he loves even if she doesn't biologically match this original being because so much of what's interesting to me about this film is like characters like Joy um character who who is the the sort of uh partner of officer k of joe uh she's you know she renames him joe um and and the importance of their relationship being that like it doesn't matter that she is uh, a hologram it doesn't matter that the beginning of that relationship was uh a commercial one was that he bought this this program who became joy um what's important is that their relationship was genuine and had subjective value uh carolyn pettit has written about this really well over on feminist frequency she has an article called officer k and the real girl cultural dehumanization in blade runner 2049 and writes about how joy being uh, uh, an, an active participant in her love of k is this really great um kind of decoupling of biological uh femininity and and like the and, and feminine identity uh it doesn't it, it kind of rejects the entire notion of the kind of pregnancy subplot which which is all tied into the deckard stuff you're talking about um and like i think that stuff is a little bit cleaner if you get a, if you do step away from the deckard stuff but also i like that fight scene a lot of them in the in the <laughs> vegas like restaurant well, and so i i kind of wish that we could rehabilitate those scenes instead of cut them completely i so i actually think we can but I think I think it almost get, it almost be, like is better if you discuss it as an act of the movie about like what the ultimate fate of Vegas has to say and how these two mm. characters interact. That's a great <laughs> scene. What bugs me, I, but I, but I do think the thing that really bothers me about the making Deckard and Rachel's love question yeah. mark yeah, yeah. Uh, sure. making that so central to the film uh which actually you know I'm, I'm being facetious there but the movie definitely is like ah they were the fated couple and all that and like 
Just watch or, that movie. Their coupling is super troubling for a whole shit sucks. ton of reasons. One, it completely sucks. But then, I, yeah. I will say that the movie does also bring it. The does have that little alibi in it. The twenty forty nine does have that bit where it's like maybe Tyrell programmed you both so that you would meet each other and partner well, up. This is this is where so Danielle and I talked a lot about yeah. uh, Blade Runner like on Idle Weekend a few weeks ago. And I think we sort of came around to, like, our, like, reading of the film is that basically a lot of what we're seeing is a science experiment. Like, there's no reason for him to meet Rachel at all, except Tyrell wants that meeting to happen. Like, this is all, you know, this is all being sort of run, you know, behind the curtain by Tyrell to some extent. But what bugs me here is it starts from that place. But then what it ends up introducing is a freaking Chosen One narrative. Yeah. Right. Um, and the thing animating the replicant android resistance is this idea that, at least the way it kind of reads to me, that there's some sort of like replicant royal fucking family out there. <laughs> right. That they are rallying okay, so, behind. So this is the thing that it the, – so yes, I think you're totally right. That, that is what is happening, that the replicant uh, – uh, resistance is like ah yes you know king deckard and queen rachel and the chosen heir um and the thing that i want there to be for be and i need to see the movie again and again and again to to start working through this is they're wrong um and it's an echo of how the first replicant resistance was wrong um so the prequel, so in between Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049, they released these three prequel films that connect the two uh, stories. Did you watch those? No. Okay. So the first one is the Batista character. Uh, I've seen him, this one. Yeah. And this him fleeing after trying to save a family, basically, in, in the LA streets. Yeah. The second one is Nyander uh, Wallace convincing the convincing or killing i don't remember exactly the board who who decides whether or not you can make replicants and he's like you know what i've done for the world i brought food back to the world i I fed everybody you have to give me this extra this extra um uh kind of flexibility with the law and they're like no Uh the last time that we had replicants like they rebelled and and that's when the blackout happened and he's like yeah but mine don't say no like mine are complete slaves um and this is that's with Leto, Jared Leto, um, and stuff. Uh, uh, just a quick aside there. Uh, someone we left out about that first scene. Yes. Kay even makes it a point of pride. Yes. In his conversation with the Batista character, he says, my mo- like my kind or my model right. doesn't run. Doesn't run. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, it is. It's a point of pride. It's definitely that. Um, and, and the third one is an anime uh, short film done by Shinichiro, directed by Shinichiro Watanabe, the director of, of Cowboy Bebop, um, which means you should just see it already, <laughs> uh, especially since the final shot of Blade Runner is just the final shot of Cowboy Bebop. Uh, Blade Runner 2049 is literally the final shot of Cowboy Bebop. Um, and uh, it is the backstory of the replicants doing the revolution like 30 years ago it is them causing the blackout detonating a nuke in low orbit um that destroys all of the that like erases the records and shuts down you know all the technology and blah 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 and the reason that that's important is that or for me is what did they earn in their revolution (laughs) um eventually what they earned was work low wage work (laughs) 
slurs written on their doors and the ability to to join the free market the they get to go to buy, buy luxury goods now yeah to buy, to buy girlfriends, girlfriends yes exactly but That's all in this heard. weird company town model where it's totally. like oh you're in this closed loop you, you know it's it's a really shitty like pullman village right so it's like yes they are no and also the shift from being given you know six years of a, of a life cycle to uh, and the freedom to resist to you can live forever, but you can't say no, um, which is also kind of vague. Because I think that's another question here is whether or not these these characters, these new replicants, are actually enslaved, or if ideology is just hard to overcome. <laughs> um, which again, we can get into. But uh, so for me, the thing that then that you can build off of that is is their hope that oh, if we have a king and a queen, not literally, but you know, figuratively. Oh, if we can, if Oh, the way humans work is that everything comes down to biology. It comes down to uh, a woman's value is in her uterus, basically. Right. Um, then that's that's what they also believe, and they're still caught in the loop. And the reason that I think that that is meaningful is that in the end, Kay doesn't side with like value is about what's physical and what's not physical. He sees the advertisement for joy. He sees the crassest version of the woman he loves, right? Of like, here is the product that they're selling me. And his response isn't nihilistic. It isn't cynical. It isn't like, and that means that my relationship with joy was meaningless. It's, oh, these feelings I have towards Deckard, even though he isn't my father, even though my relationship with him isn't biological, those are still real, and so I want to do the right thing by him instead of, like, doing the right thing by the Resistance and, and you know, letting him die and all that, you know? Um, it's, I think, a deeply complicated relationship that I have not... I could talk to you next week and feel the opposite way, but I don't think it's cut and dry as the Resistance wants the wants to protect the notion of childbearing replicant women and that means that 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 they're because they're the resistance that is the the moral lens of the film i think that they are being deceived too you know yeah i just wish the resistance had as much screen time as that it really needed to develop <laughs> a complex yeah, totally. point of view, honestly. Uh, that it that was felt so like they were going to spin it off as a TV show or yeah, an anime, frankly. Like it not really a good TV like... show. That <laughs> felt <laughs> like some Canadian sci-fi, like You're... shot of Vancouver. Oh, they're all wearing trackpads. Yes! Actually, actually I mean, this brings up the fact that we're wrong that there are only two Blade Runner shows, or two, two Blade Runner works. There is also Total Recall uh, twenty. 70 as i think the name of the show 20 yeah total recall 2070 a science fiction show uh that literally has that literally does take place in the blade runner universe um uh sort of kind of it's like a combination of the total recall universe and the blade runner universe okay oh good there are replicants is it, it is, is it Canadian... just pk dick or is it the movies universes because that's a totally different it's it's a it's a mix <laughs> okay. like the, so recall exists as a as a company like the the total recall company okay. recall um and they also there's also a, a non-tyrell uh replicant company and it's a buddy cop show between like <laughs> shitty not deckard like it's one 100 percent the lead character is named ian Favre, and he is just 
like no sorry the lead character's name i'm wrong the lead character's name is david hume oh. <laughs> of course uh-huh oh. uh-huh uh, uh-huh. uh and he is bad uh he's played by a guy who's partnered to- with norton anthology <laughs> basically he is he's 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 partnered with a robot named Ian Favre who has a terrible haircut, but it is totally what if there was a Blade a Canadian Blade Runner show? One hundred percent, it's worth watch watching because it's it's yes. terrible, but I I actively love it. Like I really, I, I might do a second watch of Quick of aside, Total Recall twenty seventy. Go ahead. Who here watched the short lived Fox uh, detective show set in the Minority Report universe? Uh, I are- watched the first two episodes of it. And then couldn't anymore because they didn't get the point of that story at all. That yeah. story is about not trusting like any sort of automated police force. And then that's the show is like we're auto cops. Well, I actually so I think they sort of found their feet because I think where okay. it takes off is like, yeah, but the precogs still have their powers. Like the society has decided that was a disastrous experiment, except one of the precogs is still seeing murders that actually happen. And so it's kind of this crisis of like, how do I use this power without falling into the shit the precog program did? Yeah, I'm always um, cautious because that's like that's like the weird devil's advocate argue, argument, though, right? Of like, yeah. what if, listen, I'm just a race realist. What if the science is right? <laughs> oh, God. God. What if the science is right? People don't want to believe. They don't want to. They, what if the science is right? And it's like, mm, yeah. Mm, I still think maybe precogs don't listen. Don't we can't arrest people before we can't. Um, what I was going to bring up is the other canceled Fox TV almost show, Almost Human, Almost Human, yes. which is which is good as far as I'm concerned. It is. It I think is it's legitimately good. I'm adding um, these to my very long list. Danielle, please. Oh, these watch are so Almost good. Human. I know I'm going to need to watch this. They're rough in all the right ways. Yes, like they misfire in ways that are like super endearing. Yep, Michael Ely and uh, who's the white dude? Who's the white cop? Guy who plays Bones. Carl Urban. Uh, Carl, Carl, Carl Urban. Urban. Yes. Oh. Carl Urban is the is the is the He's other cop the in guy. that. Um, and that's a show that takes place in Detroit. It's 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 the Detroit Become Human game, like one hundred percent. Oh my god! If, if I oh were confident, god. if I were confident that Detroit Become Human, we're gonna be half as good <laughs> as Almost Human. I'd be like, I'd be on cloud nine. I'd just be like on a beach, just like yep. waiting for this for this, this game. One isn't 100%. that hundred percent? Okay. No, this is twenty fourteen. Yeah. I liked. I really liked Almost Human a lot. Uh, it's bad. Like it has some really rough episodes. Sure. Uh, like truly rough episodes. Um, I mean, I'm but, a Star Trek Voyager fan, so yeah, you're ready to don't go. Worry. Uh, it's only it's, it's only 13 episodes. You'll blow right through it. Hell yeah. um, now that we've talked about the extended Blade Runner universe, <laughs> uh, I, th- but you're totally right. Like I think that that sequence, uh, the the Resistance sequence, did feel um, like it needed more. And it, but to me, it also just felt like it was never going to be, this is never going to be the story of how the replicants overcame capitalism. Um, because I think that the, like, I do think that the film is about getting yours. Um, and I don't mean mm-hmm. that in a cynical mm-hmm. sense in the, like getting yours, uh, where like you get yours and then disconnect from the rest of the world. You get paid. It's not about getting paid. It's about finding value in a place you can't change. Getting um, your human rights. 
No, it's bit. not about well, getting your human rights. It's not. It's no? your isn't. I don't know because then it would be about the resistance, and then it would be like, how do they go about getting? How do they fight back against the laws? And see, how do they I actually change? Watch that. That's the I know, but I'm saying I that's not see. what this. But yeah. like, I think that those movies, those stories, do exist about about androids. Those stories do exist about the. I'm saying this is like I think one of my biggest problems with the film is there are three or four characters of color in a film that's very clearly about uh, like being yeah. a character, a person of color who is mistreated and has slurs tossed at you, and you're a, a working you 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 have to work the jobs that nobody else wants to also, work. Also, does he even being bar- a slave style hunter in the background of a scene? Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, he's God a doctor. Damn it! I got That's so excited 100%. for a split second. Yep. He was one of the other cops, right? Like, yes, he yeah, was, he's like yeah. he's like the coroner or something. I was like, um, please let him be the partner. Like, uh, and then there's another there's another famous actor, the the guy who um, well, Ryan I, the Orphanage. No, oh yeah, well, uh, him too. But then also the the one who I'm thinking of is the one who recognized what type of bug it was or whatever. Oh, the dude from the, um, some, the Somalian actor. The Somalian uh, actor, yeah. yeah uh, or or yes, I don't yes, actually yes. Don't know if he was Somalian, but he was in... No, he, he, was no, in, he is. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, God, what, from Captain Phillips, right? Is yes. that the name yes. of the, the... And, like, walked away with that picture, like... Oh, yeah, totally. 100%. Um, why, the fact that I can't name him is a depressing thing. Uh, Barkad uh, Abdi. Barkad Abdi. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure that was him. In, yeah, it was. It was him in Blade Runner also. Um, so it's like, there are no characters of color in this movie that is about a an entire race of people being forced to do the dirt for other for white people okay uh, so this is white people something i actually wanted to get into because we talked a little bit about it on idle weekend we're talking about blade runner yeah so like i definitely think it's it's definitely problematic that there's like these omissions and these these roles aren't written in this movie but my question is is the movie making a point about the racism of a society or is the movie just like playing into like latent racism? I think it's both, right? Yeah. Like I think, yeah. I think that you can and- have the person who intends that, but then also it is, it's a, it's so here's the, the actual, the actual way in which it's making a commentary that I think is unintentional is there is no black Ryan Gosling in Hollywood. There yeah. should be, um, there absolutely should be. Uh, and the way to make that is to cast that role, you know, but like, um, or maybe there is like, maybe it's Chadwick Boseman, right? You know, like maybe a year from now, there will be no excuse. Um, well, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. If we're, like, yeah, I'm not sure that you'd get a star of color who's allowed to have as little right. affect as right. Gosling does yeah, in that's exactly a lot what I mean. of his roles. That's exactly what I mean. Like, that's part of the appeal of of Gosling is that when he's in that mode, when he's in his drive mode instead of his nice guys mode, he is, like, terrifying. Um, And when black men are terrifying on screen, they're rarely allowed to be both terrifying and sexy. Um, And Gosling's, like, that's one entire part of one of his modes is I am both terrifying and sexy. Um, And, like, black men don't get that. Um, and, and like talk black women or women in, of color in general, just like don't get access to roles, period. Um, like, yeah, I don't know. There's lots of roles that could have been played by, by people of color. Um, there's a way to tell this story that I think better, you know, centralizes women as, um, as in pr- protagonist roles, uh, instead of just kind of adjacent sex workers and, or, yeah. I need to. I Holographic really, housewives. Yeah. Um, I, I'm. I'm so torn on that. I'm curious Wright, what you th- alive for a few. That's minutes. true. That's <laughs> true. I'd Go forgotten. On. Of course. Actually, Robin Wright. I think has. 
does a lot with a limited role, but I think yeah. uh, her character, the 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 lieutenant, uh, ends up having a really interesting arc and some nuanced interactions with um, Kay. That like mm-hmm. she's one of those great characters where I leave like she leaves me with a lot of questions about who she is when she Same. leaves the picture. Like yeah. she's not a solved problem for me. Yeah. Not uh, what did what did you make of that? Because you brought her up, Danielle. Like what? Like is there anything that leaped out there? Yeah, I mean, this is a classic case for me of actors and actresses who are a thousand times more interesting and talented than the build talent, the top build talent. Like, I I would have rather seen this movie if it was Robin Wright as an android trying to figure out her own shit. Like, frankly, I mean, that's just for me. We also have, like, Edward James Olmos in this movie. And, like... I mean, but that guy, yeah, yeah. Oh, (laughs) yeah, but he was not reprising his role as Gaff. Like, that was Edward James Olmos in this movie. Just to, like, show that, like... Oh, I know. I feel the same way about Harrison Ford, honestly, in this movie. Like, I I like him more in it. I I think that he's, like, I just think that he has good rapport with Gosling. I have a big crush on Gosling, so I'm going to be fine. Like, I'm going to want to see it, like, Gosling yeah. be that dude on screen. I just am. I super um, do. I, also, I, I, I don't want to pay. I kind of want both of them to just drown in the fucking sea and then the more interesting <laughs> people to do other stuff. Yeah, but, you know... Yeah. So well, I the think, thing is, go ahead. I think the thing that I like about the lieutenant as a, as a character is that she is... She very clearly encapsulates the, like, emptiness of the people who say you're one of the good ones um, <laughs> or the like the, not the emptiness, but the ulterior motive there. Like she fetishizes Kay for a lot of reasons, right? Like she very much likes to be in control of him. The sequences where she is testing exactly how enslaved he is to her uh, are very frightening. Um, and also have this like, it is. It was weird because those are. That's a sequence that, if that is a a, uh, and I think in a, in a number of other films, that would be a sequence that was played to be almost exploitatively scary between a male lieutenant and a female android, mm-hmm. um, where she, where uh, that role is is meant to to kind of play with that. And I think that uh, you know Villeneuve. Uh, that's not how you pronounce it. Is I never get his name right. Villeneuve. 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 I don't know. It's Villeneuve. I don't know. Um, uh, is is trying to play with gender in this movie, and I don't know that it always works um, at all. I think a lot of women have correctly pointed out that it doesn't, even though there are characters like the lieutenant, like the leader of the resistance who is a woman, um, it rarely feels like, 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 like Love, the assassin uh, replicant who is like diehard, uh, die, not only diehard enslaved, but like is... You know, her her closing line is, I'm the best one. Um, even though there are those characters who do, who take action, it's rare that their perspective feels agentic. It feels like it is the perspective the film cares about. Um, though I do think that I'm so curious what to make of the love scene, which is, and I've seen, I've seen sex workers write about this now or talk about this on Twitter, is a very rare instance of, I think, one, women in gate, like women in film, in big blockbuster Hollywood film, being the the people who decide that sex work should happen, um, and then seeing that sex work as a thing that is intended, at least, to be a positive interaction and not dirty and not gross. Um, I'm curious if either of you walked away from that sequence with any feelings. 
a lot of feelings. Every feeling, every feeling that exists. Um, yeah. So I, I, I kind of want to go about this slightly differently in that I, I have been interested in a lot of people's different reactions, not just to the sure. scene, but to the how gender is, is presented in general in this movie. Because I think that's the biggest flaw of the movie. I think it, it really fucks up. Uh, when it comes to gender i think it wants to say some things i think it raises some interesting questions and i think it pukes Uh all over itself uh, when it comes to actually executing on saying something interesting about it so there's there's obviously carolyn's piece is wonderful and she uh goes into this a tiny bit about uh she says in her piece joy is a troubling figure in the film a commodified embodiment of a male fantasy which the film never examines closely or critically enough and she deserves a piece all her own so that's just her little aside there about that. And I, right. I agree with that completely. I think there's something interesting there. There's something interesting about Joy. There's something interesting about a, a person who is really a product, who is developed in a certain way, and she's programmed to want to make a man happy in every way. Mm-hmm. And the film uses all these 50s housewife ass, you know, kinds of things. Oh, yeah. Like, it's really like, oh, honey, uh, you're home. I have a new Let me make you dinner. You. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. Totally. just how interchangeably she can look like something else. And of course, it's all different, you know, very hegemonic uh, ideals of, of the way women are supposed to look. This is what a hot woman looks like. So the movie is presenting this and showing us these images in a way that I think we're supposed to be somewhat critical of. But then we're also supposed to accept that, no, she's a real person, too, and she really loves him. She just happens to be, you know, mm. only existing to love him <laughs> because he bought her. Well, no, I don't. I don't well, think that's true at all. See, that's the my, so. My whole read on this film is that these characters are not, in fact, enslaved at all. Like that, the only way this movie makes sense to me is if none of these characters that the programming has intense limits. Like it just doesn't read unless K can do whatever he wants because he constantly does whatever he wants. If Joy can do whatever she wants, like she doesn't have the Asimovian rules of self-preservation. Like she makes the very clear choice. And it's, I'm 100% with you that I think it's shitty that the only, that the choice that she makes is like, no, I love you, the male figure in this movie. That's how I'm proving that I'm a real person. But I think that that's a choice that comes from her. I don't think that that, I, I don't know that the movie makes sense to me if the characters who were told are perfectly enslaved are perfectly enslaved. Well, I don't think it's then, necessarily okay, so, about enslavement. I, I think it's more that... <laughs> honestly, I think the movie just didn't do enough work to show me that she is actually a real person who has real feelings. Like, that's that's my issue here. Uh, for me, so, that sex scene is that scene, which is like, he clearly is kind of awkward about it, and she's the one who wants it. She's trying to please him. Like, I but completely he's like, uh, read this that is as, super weird. Yeah, like, he's saying it's weird, but like, no, no, no. No, I have to be real to make you happy. Like, it's a complete self-sacrifice. She doesn't seem like she's pleasurably into it. I would get that, absolutely, if she was looking up and down Mackenzie Davis, like, yeah, all right, let's do well, this. No, because I think she's I think she's looking up and down Kay like that. Like, that's the character that she's into in that sequence, right? Like, I don't know. Like, I, I think that I, I'm totally willing to defer to, to your read here. Um, but, like, I, I seeing that... It felt to me like he didn't want to. He was the one who was the least interested in being in that sequ- in that scene. So, can I throw out a, a slightly different reading that like totally. might split the difference a little bit? Sure. For me, the thing that I think Joy is able to make like these are the things that like she wants, but the question is. Does she have a choice in what she chooses to want? You know right, what I mean? Totally. Like, and for me, that's kind of the meaning of that scene where he sees the giant ad and she's, uh, 
you know this really tacky sex object yep uh in uh you know in in this in this ad and i think it is a moment where we're meant to reflect on like how genuine could that relationship have ever been if the place she starts from is what danielle's talking about which is she exists for you right and like she's such a great uh <laughs> she she's such a great product that she is the slave that never contemplates freedom um and or the concept would have no meaning uh because just what they yeah, organically want from the poison tree type situation yeah and and so i think like it makes their relationship really interesting because i i think it does feel like she has this agency and she does like make some really self-sacrificing choices that like are her own like she's afraid to risk death but she does it because she loves this guy but at the toward the end of the movie he's also forced to contemplate like where she came from and how she was used up until these last few days yeah and i think you know, to its weakness that is a mirror for his own where did i come from am i also just this um like i think that that is she is not fridged because I think that she's given lots of time, like in the traditional sense, which is like, oh, a character, a woman is killed in the first 15 minutes of a movie to justify a shitty revenge plot. But she is killed in order for him to confront his own uh, lack of agency or, or to wonder, do I have my own, is my own agency mine? Is, am I also programmed to be doing the things I'm doing right now? Um, and I, I like a hundred percent with you that I want more of her by herself. Um, I am curious, like, what does she do all day besides, like, does she do things that are not, here's what I'll do when he gets home? Because my, like, non-cynical take is yes, but that's in my imagination and not on the film, right? I don't know. He literally turns her off at one point yeah. when he has to go to work. Like, I don't True. know, man. True. But True. I'm curious how you guys, what you guys made of a moment toward the end of the uh, the sex scene uh, or that entire sequence there's a really mutually nasty moment between Joy and Mackenzie Davis's character, yeah. uh, that sat weirdly with me. I don't know that it's a, I don't know that it's a bad choice uh, from a writing standpoint, but it is an example of it's kind of like, uh, you know, the matron and the whore, or you know, the the wife and the prostitute, basically like sniping each other for the roles they they fill. Mm-hmm. Um, and it yeah. does, and I don't know how I felt about it. Cause basically both of them are like really nasty and denigrating of each other, um, over their like mutual jealousy of their status, both in like in this social hierarchy and also in their relationship to this person. Um, so I'm just curious what you guys made of that. Yeah. I thought it was shitty and damning in terms of this movie wanting to go for the cheap fucking laugh instead of actually have a meaningful thing to say about gender and sexuality. And I was Im- bummed and that not, uh, is there a term for this not embodied sexuality, like sexuality that completely exists within, for example, right, an AI and a, and a, and a being that exists in the physical world. I don't know. Right. I'm not sure. I, I am curious if, or the thing that bummed me out, not bummed me out, but it felt cheap when she shows back up and, oh, she's secretly been part of the resistance the whole time. Because for me, like I said, I have a pretty positive read on that that sex scene in that I think it is a rare scene in science fiction, especially, especially in Blade Runner, right? Which, like, sex workers in that first film literally exist to be killed. Um, and in this case, it felt like I could imagine 
why like I saw that sequence as being pro sex work uh, as being like hey this is a thing that someone in a relationship wants as part of their relationship and that is not the depiction we would have gotten in the original Blade Runner right like Deckard would have dismissed any sex worker as being fake or as being like unnecessary or dirty. And like, that was not what happened in that part of it, in the actual love scene. And then as soon as it was over, that's exactly what happened when she was like, I'm done with you, which fucking sucked. And then like undercut her, her value as a person who did sex work by then later saying, Oh, the reason she's valuable is because she's part of the resistance, not because she like brings joy into people's lives consensually, which would have been fine. Like she didn't need to also be part of the resistance in order for her to be a valuable person, which undercuts to me the the larger message that the thing that I'm taking away, which is about subjective value, um, which is a bummer. Like I absolutely think that that part like is a missed is totally a mixed uh, missed mark. I think there's um, really kind of one. I think the lieutenant is somewhat interesting. I think there's really kind of one woman character in this movie that is not an absolute just missed opportunity to do something interesting. And that is, uh, it's Dr. Staline, I think is her name. And she is the woman who makes robot memories out of a sort of right. a beautiful, weird, See, I, interesting I'm the little other machine. way on her. Really? She bums me out. She, to me, was like the biggest missed mark on, on women characters in this because she's... We'll talk. You, you go ahead. Why does she work for you? Well, she works for me because it's it's a woman who is, <laughs> in the most literal sense, she's in a cage. She's in like a glass cage, basically, right? Mm-hmm. She has no real contact with the rest of the world. She has no real contact with the rest of the ugliness in the world. And she actually manages to make beautiful things. <laughs> like, she's kind of the one person in this right. world who makes <sighs> something beautiful and who makes something that doesn't feel like, I don't know, like a gendered product, like a very like. <sighs> I mean, so for me, it was she does the re- she does the reproductive labor of keeping every replicant, uh, like working. She's yeah, the one who builds yeah. their memories so that they feel like people and can work for free for other people. Um, she's like they've mass marketed. Like, if Joy is literally a mass market wife that dudes can go to buy, then for every replicant, they have that the Dr. Celine who, like, does the reproductive labor of creating a childhood for them. She's every replicant's mother. Um, and that is, like, and then is kept behind a cage and then is, like, positioned as the MacGuffin for Deckard. Uh, and, like, that was, like, oh, like, I wish Deckard had found a way towards subjective value the way that Kay does like had found a way to be like I lived my life I know I loved Rachel whether or not I was programmed for it or not like whatever I'm glad we got the fuck out of that town I don't need to the the my only connection the only thing in my life that's valuable is not the the daughter that I had who has been locked away like I'm glad that they reconnect like in a very traditional storybook way like um, I'm also glad we don't see them reconnect I'm don't I'm glad that we don't like there's not a big like tearful re- like uh, reunion because I don't think that that's like you said earlier, Daniel, like not the focus of the story. Um, but but also that was ain't nobody having a warm reunion with late career Harrison Ford. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely not. I couldn't imagine. Man, I, I wonder if they shot that and it was just like this is too. No, just, no, like, no, you're not. You don't care about this, Harrison. Just just turn the camera off and yell cut in a few minutes. I'm gonna go mm-hmm. get a coffee. Hey, hey, yeah, you get to you get to fly your plane in like ten minutes, Harrison. Just. Just pretend no. you're flying your plane. <laughs> Please That's... don't crash it this time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah, seriously. 
I, I just um, think the biggest bummer for me in, in the movie, and it was a bummer for me, was that I, I do feel like it really was trying to bring up some questions. I do feel like it was trying to do something with Joy, but I really yeah. don't think it, it did enough with that character. And I don't think it condemned. I, what I felt like it was, it was it was trying to have its cake and eat it too, in terms of being like, look at this objectification. Look at how gross this is. Look at how weird it is to commodify women to this degree. But also it totally did that. It totally did that by showing hot pictures of sexy girls. Yeah. Like it, it's, it's absolutely, I mean, like I said, one of those the same, for me. It is like that plus further on, not further, it's not Olympics, right? But like <laughs> there are three people of color in that absolutely. movie. None, you yeah. can't name any of them. Uh, but it's a story about it's a story about black and brown bodies being used to hurt other black and brown bodies. So like I get it one hundred percent. It's just also it is also to me like I, I'm here's the actual thing is like I think if I lean into that reading of the film, then it is the most depressing film we've seen. Right? Like it is there is no it's such a cynical reading to to read like Joy as having no um, no agency that I don't know that I can confront it. And that is on me as a, as a viewer, right? Like, um, I want joy to be, I want the, you know what it is? It's like, this is the, it's the end of the Carolyn piece. The Carolyn piece over at Femme Freak is yeah. like, uh, after losing his joy, Kay, uh, uh, encounters an interactive ad for the joy product line, but he seems to know that the connection he had with his particular joy cannot be replaced. So Kay himself now aware of his own existence as an individual can't go back to being an obedient replicant who accepts his own status as subhuman and serves as an institution that violently enforces the baseless imposed hierarchy. Maybe he finally understands that every replicant, including himself is real, even if they don't meet the culture's artificial oppressive standards for what constitutes real and so like that is the lens that i think about the relationship with joy and and joy as an also as an individual who is herself not just an obedient ai but is uh and and you know a real even though she doesn't meet society's overarching including including the people who should be joy's allies the replicants who even they think what real is is biological birth right is oh the only thing that is real is we had rachel gave a, had a baby and that's why we're real um like i the only reading for me that that doesn't make me hurt is the one that says the biological necessity the 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 shackles that are put on us by capitalism all of those shake in the face of our decision to to make for us our own values that then we can that we can go fight for and the thing that falls apart is the thing that you've pointed out which is for each of the female characters in the movie the thing that they value is some dude uh <laughs> in the case of of joy it's k or joe in the case of of love it's neander um uh, and and then like we don't really get anything for I guess like Lieutenant is just kind of like fuck off to love when their encounter happens. <laughs> also, I don't know that I love guess. gives a shit about Neander. Uh, she wants to be the best one, and and the person who judges that is Neander. You know? Yeah. I don't know, but like, she yeah. she operates pretty independently. Like totally, she openly refers to she's going to lie to him. That's fair. Um, yeah. Like yeah. she def like the the thing about her character is like. She definitely comes across as the well, you know. Talking about a movie like this to with slavery, she's sort of playing the uh, the character that uh, like the house character in Django. 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the, the Sam Samuel Jackson, Jackson character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, she, the, she's the Uncle Tom. Yeah, absolutely. I'll say it. Well, more so no, but except more malevolent, I, I right, think. Right? right. Like the issue there is like this is a character who's found a tremendous amount of power by sort of wearing a mask of obedient servant to a really powerful and amoral master. Right. And uses that to basically give themselves the green light to a lot of their own abuses. Uh, perpetrated against people like themselves. Uh, and I kind of felt that, like, love is definitely operating uh, in, in that space. Uh, but I don't know. It protects the status quo because she happens to be one of the few who benefits from it. Yeah. And she has to believe she's the best because otherwise, why does she deserve to have this privileged life mm. when her fellows are, uh, you know, being kept in slums or bombed from orbit, basically. Right. By her. By yeah. her bombed from orbit. Yeah. Uh, so, I don't know. I think um, Love is a character that came away. Uh, I was pretty intrigued by uh, as well. I want to talk a little bit about... So we talked about assigning value and the limits of like political imagination mm. and revolution. For me, one of the things that like the whole movie kind of like it's weird. The movie underplays it, but my memory of it, the scene, lo- the whole sequence looms pretty large. Uh, when he goes out to the junkyard, yeah, uh, out in what used to be San Diego, which is a pretty vicious uh, <laughs> dig at San Diego yeah. from Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, goes out to, to the San Diego junkyard and you discover like how the other, other half live, uh, where not only like the underclass that we've seen in, uh, like Los Angeles is at least like still a part of that society, right? Like you're, 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 you know, they're low status, but they're at least part of it. The thing we see in San Diego is all the unsightly, exploitative, nightmarish shit that enabled that that society that we spent our whole movie, the whole movie watching, the, the whole movie in. Um, and San Diego is actually where a lot of it is made possible. It is where stuff is recycled. Right. It is where stuff is turned usable again. It is where, uh, God, it is it is where ch- uh, you know children. Right. And like replicant children are They're kind like of dumped like to e-waste, learn e-waste e-waste work, basically. Yeah, and nobody's political imagination or vocabulary even encompasses these people's existence. Right, and they are the subaltern the- who like cannot even who don't who th- there is no revolution for the children. Right, there is no there is no resistance. The, the resistance leaders don't go, and then we're going to go to San Diego and free those kids. No, yeah, and so it, th- like that entire sequence end up looming pretty large for me because it's like let's see it's a free fire zone like you want to does a corporation want to drop uh cluster munitions into san diego because one of their company representatives is being like getting jacked yeah. uh sure they can do that um do you just want to dump like acres of refuse on their heads and make children sift through it absolutely fine um it is kind of this giant open air uh, gulag, right? And and it's, and it's clear that the it's this is not a thing that's happening in the ignorance of those who could do something about it. It is explicitly the powerful and the rich who go to to buy wares there. Yeah, including who, who if you're least, lucky enough. Yeah, I, the implication seems to be if you're oh. lucky enough, one of those little children. Lucky is strong, Rob. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, I, I don't know. Does does K have it better than somebody who's stripping capacitors off right. circuit boards like out of a junk heap twenty four seven? Probably a little bit. But this is the thing, right? Like, yes, lucky is relative. But the thing is, like, this is like the under underclass, and nobody's acknowledging that it exists. Yeah. Uh, like, and this is one of the things I like about this setting. Uh, so we've now hit the stage of the history of this universe where the off-world colonies are pretty much, it sounds like, almost self-sufficient. Like, they're, they're kind like of... eight of them, and they work. Yeah. Yeah. And things, at least according to what we hear, are roughly proceeding, like, apace there, right? Like, it's not a total, like, nightmare catastrophe right. out in the outward, off-world right. colonies. Right, the thing that Wallace says is he wants... Eight isn't enough. 16 isn't enough he wants a million right like, that's the thing yeah he is like classic venture capitalist he wants to see hockey stick stick growth he doesn't want to he just, just see regular disrupt, growth you know yeah exactly. colony growth all right he just wants to disrupt it uh i he mean just he loves is, four axes yeah yeah i mean that's yeah. the thing he absolutely you know say what you will about jared leto but dude nailed that character the piece of shit silicon valley want to be god i mean like yeah even more so than tyrell i think in the first film who is just oh, it's like different. a it's, soulless corporate piece of crap like yeah i feel like tyrell like reflects the difference between tyrell and wallace reflects the difference between what we think of as tech leaders exactly yeah, totally right i think that's fair I, I i suppose it's just that i'm a more aware human being of 2017, and I know more of the bad things here than yeah, I clearly that, yeah, did yeah. in 1980. Well, I wasn't around. No, I just think in 1982, obviously, the... but yeah. Um, I know, but I think you're totally right. Is all I think that like the Tyrell version of it is just the tech bros didn't get there. It weren't as Silicon Valley as they are, right? Yeah, like a a Wall Street dick. Like he, well, no, right. actually, hold on though. Actually, I think a crucial difference is Tyrell is portrayed. As sort of the founder of the company, he's the genius who made a lot of this possible. Like he can build replicants. Like he, like you know, he basically like you know imbued these uh, replicants with like you know the breath of life. Basically, like he knows the tech, he knows the science, and he feels entitled to be like their god. But he like built that corporation. Wallace collected distressed assets. <laughs> <laughs> and Listen, he fed everybody he figured out how to grow maggots that we could eat and then he bought all the distressed assets right but this is what i mean is that i think i think quite i think for a lot of reasons danielle he actually reads as hollower because he is a ted talk thought leader oh yeah uh, whose vision oh, totally. and understanding of the replicants is complete bullshit uh, in a way that Tyrell's was not, but in 2017, we are so hyper aware of this character. There is room in the 80s to sort of still kind of admire or appreciate a Tyrell character for all their all their sins, yeah. but like a Wallace character, um, is just you know an exploitative uh, phony. You've seen the the this is like the again the nerdiest shit and that it's about weird crossover stuff. But you've seen the Peter Wayland. Oh yeah, yeah. about, about uh, Tyrell. Be- yeah. Better than Prometheus uh-huh. by far. <laughs> well, uh, that's another discussion. I think okay. I think Prometheus actually has a lot of really interesting stuff as well. Yeah, I don't. I also I don't want to throw I want Prometheus to... under the bus. Is all I'm saying. It can get thrown under. You don't like want to throw a, it under the giant wheel. A scooter, <laughs> like a small scooter. It, it, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, for people who don't know what we're talking about, though, briefly, uh, there was something that came out of Prometheus um, that was like a was it a, a letter or something that that like specifically mentioned a 
Yeah, it's a letter. It's like a it's a thing inside of the like on a screen somewhere that includes like uh, a whole line about um, uh, making replicants and and how. I mean, it's very clear. It's like uh, that's how he ran his corporation, like a god on top of a pyramid overlooking a city of angels. <laughs> like, of oh, course god damn to, it! Of course, he chose to replicate the power of creation in an unoriginal way by simply copying God versus versus you know uh, Wayland having built androids, specifically like actually robotic beings instead of instead of just kind of genetic clones. Um, which actually, I, I am actually here's a here's a here's another step. Uh, let's go back to a thing that Danielle mentioned forever ago, which was production design. But let's like, kind of blow that up a little bit because the, the thing I really want to talk about. I think the production design in this movie is okay. I think there are highs and lows. I think that there's like I think that the fly through Vegas that I think high. is a model is a model. Super the, high. like um, yeah. is really great. Yes. Uh, I don't think that Kay's gun is very good compared to the original Deckard gun, but what can be? Um, but the thing I actually want to talk about is the new Voight Kampf test, the, yes. the baseline test, mm, yes. um, in which you repeat so, uh, lines from, or at least Kay repeats lines from Pale Fire, the Nabokov uh, poem. What did you think of that sequence? This was one example... Or those sequences, this, I this guess, This was one right? example for me where... It's so clear that they're trying to do an homage to a, a previous thing, and it's so clear that they want it to have its own personality, its own flavor. They want it to be this more minimalist thing, whereas, you know, sort of chunky uh, analog technology was cool in 1982. Now it's like this, no, it's clean, really oh, nice right, looking. that room. Yeah. In the room and everything. I think it looked cool. I understand the purpose that it served, but I do think this was one of those examples where it was like... It was trying a little too hard to be what Blade Runner was, and it was one of those examples where it, it kind of fell apart a little bit for me. Rob, what about you? I loved it. <laughs> uh, okay, so the things I, I liked about it... Uh, yeah, okay, the new Voight Kampf test done off your smartphone fucking sucks. Don't like that at all. <laughs> like, give me the giant eye reader. God damn it. I want yeah. to see, like, a giant, like, 1080 retina. Uh, just like reacting to creepy stories, uh, but the baseline test, I liked. I liked it because it underscored what you've talked about, Austin. The um, are any of these people really enslaved at all? Right. Like all it is is yeah, it's partly a, vo- a voice uh, stress test, right? Like response time and voice stress. Like how are you responding to uh, these snatches of text and word association, they're all ritualistic, but right. sort of circle around themes of uh, servility um, and, uh, like, obedience. Uh, and, and the test itself is a very, like, rapid-fire, gun-to-your-head, Simon mm-hmm. says. Uh, but the other thing I like about it is it's so patently nonsense. Right. Like, yes. it is so obviously doing nothing, because even after... The tests, even after the replicants come out, humans are still uneasy about them because they know this is nothing. They know that, you know, they know there's no man behind the curtain. Security right. theater this is, kind of thing. Yeah. Say again? It's like a security theater kind of thing. Yes. Yes. 100%. Yes. 100%. Well, like, and the thing that it actually reminded me of is, when, you know, when we, we had just recorded the first Wolfenstein 101 right before I went to go see this movie. And so I remembered Frau Engel's uh, card test mm. in the train, which is the same thing in that, like, well, it's the same thing, one, in that it's arbitrary, and that, like, at the end of the day, what it came down to is, does the lieutenant, can the lieutenant step in and, and give him the go-ahead to go forward, even though he's, quote-unquote, off his baseline? It's always going to come down to what people in power want, not what the test says. The test is always going to be secondary to, like, whoever has a badge. Um, 
two, the thing that I really actually liked about it was that it, you know, the thing that I always say, people remember flying cars, they forget, you know, burning oil fields on fire. People remember from the Voigt-Kampf test, the turtle on the back. They remember the, the you know, the questions about sexuality. Is this test about whether I'm a replicant or a lesbian, Mr. Deckard, right? Like, they, those are the things that they remember. But the actual Voigt-Kampf test, as written, is is about, like, response. It's about physical um, it's about physical pupil attributes. Response. Yeah. Pupil response, uh, heart rate, blushing. Um, it's not about what the answers are at all. You could say whatever you want to the Voigt-Kampf test. You could say, oh yeah, I step on the turtle, as long as the machine supposedly judges you as human, uh, as like, oh, you're, you're, you blush the way a human blushes. <laughs> um, and I, the thing I like about this is, is like how naked it is that uh, and it feels to me like the the same thing that you pointed out, Danielle, between Tyrell and Wallace, that like, this is the updated 2017 yeah. version. We don't fuck around with questions anymore. Just say <laughs> the fucking word. Just pick up your phone and look at it. Does it recognize you? And like, that was, I, I, like, that was great. And then the second bit is just like, I do think the rhythm of it, the like, the machine gun rhythm of needing to replace or to repeat the final word of each line is is like memorable and striking in a way that they would have that i thought like was a surprise to me like i I entered that scene being like all right here we go and then still ended up really enjoying it um which which now that we're talking about it i'm starting to appreciate it a little bit more i'm not gonna lie you're you're making a compelling case you're both making a compelling case (laughs) for it as i watched it i rolled my eyes a little bit i'm not gonna lie right but um the the little bit of trivia here with it is that it was and i think people will end up talking about this and i bet you you'll get comparisons to roy bat or to uh, uh rutger hauer uh okay. co-writing the the fi- the kind of final speech at um in in the original blade runner um he did not improv it people often say he improved it he didn't improv but he, it. Co-wrote he, it. he co-wrote it yeah he co-wrote it in the writer's room well sure um, which is awesome yeah. totally but in this the the uh Voight, the new Voight comp test, the new baseline test, uh, Gosling wrote it. Uh, there was like a smaller version of the se- of the sequence um, that, but then Gosling delivered like wrote an eight minutes version of that take or of that, and then delivered it, and like that's what they ended up going with, and like cut it down a little bit and reshot it and stuff. But it was Gosling who was like, "Oh no, this is this is what the baseline test should feel like." Um, and I think that's interesting. I think that that's like I like I, I don't always love it when you go like oh the, the star figured out the thing <laughs> with the story because it just like leans into the weird like oh we're not going to talk about how good the cinematography is but we're going to talk about how the the actor whose name you know hey, is hold the on. one let's talk about how good the cinematography is yeah. and yes, more importantly please. how cool the cinematographer is please let's talk let's talk about it uh so i saw it in imax and you know sometimes imax showings aren't necessarily like as good as they should be because like sometimes it's just you're taking the 35 millimeter print right. uh, of the film or sorry the 35 millimeter projection uh these days uh since right, a lot of it's right. digital it's but digital yeah yeah and you're just sort of blowing it onto a bigger screen with different uh a lot of different uh variables like like there there's so much to color reproduction and lighting reproduction that like it is a science and right. i am not versed in it but uh it does mean that a lot of like imax showings can be a little bit iffy and I wasn't sure how I should see this movie until Austin shared me a link to the greatest forum Yo, on the internet. So good. Don't all right, I need everyone real quick. Don't go to the forum. Let them have this. Please let them have this. Talk about the forum, Rob. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Uh, well, now I feel guilty. Now I feel like now I feel like this is the beach. Uh, and uh, I'm going to be like, yo, you guys been to Roger Deakins for Oh, man. But no, like, so there's this thread on the uh, cinematographer's website, uh, Roger Deakins. So the, Roger Deakins, who was a cinematographer. If you don't know Roger Deakins, Roger Deakins is a cinematographer who has done a lot of incredible work. Uh, he's worked with the with the Coen brothers uh, a lot. Um, he was the cinematographer on films. I mean, I guess the, the big recent one that he's done that people have probably seen uh, was like Skyfall. He was a cinematographer on. And I think Skyfall has problems, but like it ain't those shots. Those shots look good as hell. Um, but he was a cinematographer on like True Grit, on A Serious Man, which is one of my favorite movies, on Intolerable Cruelty, on The Man Who Wasn't There, which is also beautifully shot. Um, a beautiful mind. Like he's done a ton of stuff. He's a he's a fantastic uh, cinematographer and filmmaker. Um, but then, yeah, he has this form. And what was the thread called? Uh, it was basically like, what format should I see? And there were a lot of like, it look. Maybe by this forum standards, these were kind of the know-it-all characters, but like by general internet <laughs> characters, like these people were great. Yeah. Uh, but it was people being like, "Oh, don't don't see it this way because like the HDR reprodu- like projection system in these theaters sucks and all this." And Deacon sort of like arrives in the middle of the conversation. He's like, "Actually, there's no bad way to see it," which is yeah, <laughs> a company man thing to say. Except he's like, "No, uh, let me explain to you the processes I went through for every format of the film that's out there." Uh, and the exact watchouts you have to be concerned about with those formats. So, like how uh, IMAX both distorts uh, color reproduction and uh, aspect ratio a little bit right. is, is an issue. Different theaters have different projection systems, which you need to account for because, like, the same image <laughs> shot through one projector will look different through another. Uh, Deacons, like, corrected for all of that. And right. so, whatever you're seeing is kind of the definitive. Uh, you know, cinematographer's vision uh, of the film, you know, quite literally. For that for that format, basically. Yeah. But the great thing about it is it's Roger Deakins just talking with people on the internet about, <laughs> yeah. like, film projection un- and going to the movies these Believable. days. It's unbelievable. He's just like, some, uh, it's like one of the greatest cinematographers of our time, and someone is like, uh, like, hey, thanks for having this website. A friend and I are trying to complete a dark thriller movie, and we need a little advice on how to build an opening scene on a guy who walks through an alley and enters a building. The atmosphere is tense, wind blowing, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, he responds. First of all, he's the only person who responds to this post. And he goes, that's too much of an open question. I would study the natural light that hits the alley and decide from there. It may be the setting sun doesn't create much and you'd be better off lighting the shot, maybe at night. Impossible for somebody else to make that decision. And like, yo, you just got advice from Roger Deakins. Yeah, like, just imagine being able to go up to like, you know, Conrad Hall, like in a diner or something and be like, so let me, yeah. unbelievable. Like, oh, what's your storyboarding approach? And then he like walks through what his storyboarding approach is. This is it's so amazing. cool. Yeah. It's so cool to see... Well, a creator and again like part of this is the thing that we talked about earlier which is like nobody knows who roger deakins is like in the in in of the hundred percent of people who went to go see blade runner 2049 two percent know who roger deakins is 
and I'm counting me as the as the fourth percent, uh, who's the person who's like, ah, uh, didn't he do? He worked. He did Sicario, right? He did that. Like, I even I had to be like, oh wait, this is this guy. Holy shit! So, I don't know. Like, I just I was very charmed by by him. Yes, this is. Uh, I'm looking at it now. It is that is really something special. It's. It's neat. I wish we had more of this in gaming. Like, I do wish that we had, like, I mean, that's not true. We probably do have this in gaming. I don't know about it because I'm not going to forms for level designers, you know? Well, like, Yeah, but I think we almost had it in the brainy sphere, and then things got just, the space changed. Space changed, for sure. I, like, honestly, I think one of the reasons this works is because the people who know about who Roger Deakins is generally aren't extremely online. And right. so it's this weird, like, internet island of a famous cinematographer's like blog spot page <laughs> and like the half dozen people who've registered there uh to talk to him it's well, it's really cool how in honor of this like y- we talk about we each have like one shot that we thought was really good in blade run in blade runner 2049 one one piece of, of composition that we think really stood out um, does anyone have one that's like yeah. boom this is mine the entire Look, so the entire Vegas sequence yeah, for me is a standout. Uh, but the shootout in the music hall, which at first I was like, this is a little too on the nose. This is a little bit much. It's all these holographic projections of uh, the Elvis in his Vegas uh, costume and in his, in his Vegas years. So it's mm-hmm. all white suit, uh, rhinestone Elvis. Um, but the system is glitching. And so the lighting in the scene keeps, like, you are plunged repeatedly from, like, stark, like, blazing stage lights and, like, laser shows and, like, these, (laughs) uh, like, serried ranks of Elvises singing the hits to, like, pitch black, cannot see anything except, like, muzzle flashes uh, in this... And by the way, you're all at a surprising distance from the action in this sequence. Like, you're taking in the whole room, but what's foregrounded is the empty dining tables right. arrayed around the stage on which the actors are now players as well. Like the, the, you know, the, the characters are now sort of, we are watching from the gallery uh, as this floor show takes place, both the glitched one and then the one unfolding between um, Ryan Gosling and Harrison Ford. But it is just such a dazzling um, and evocative moment. And it should be tacky and overdone and yep. is right on that line, but it is carried off so well that, like, a shot that had me rolling my eyes at the start, by the end, like, had me on my feet. Totally. Danielle, what about you? Does anything jump out? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's, like, a hundred things. The first thing I'll just <laughs> say is Rachel's tomb being the most obvious biblical thing ever this sort of biblical reference it's really interesting the composition is like so stark it's that super super white and that sort of gauzy lighting and then it's like the tree (laughs) okay but but really also um also in the vegas uh sequence it's it's i don't think it's one shot there are a couple of long shots in there there are a few cuts in there as well but the sort of destroyed decaying statues that were you know these like dazzling oh, yeah, beautiful so giant statues it almost looks yeah. like a, a, but they're so tacky oh they're oh, so, so tacky good. it's a james it's so bond good. intro sequence yes, yes, that yes, has yes. gone to die oh. in a oh desert. my god that's so good and it, that's it totally is what it so is perfect and it is so that's yeah so this perfect. is vegas so i'm gonna i'm gonna go with that one but my favorite thing about that whole sequence too is just what happened to vegas yeah. we don't know like i don't know <laughs> 
like a bomb, maybe you know. Well, like, it looks like so, some bad, so, some catastrophes happened to Vegas, and then a bomb. Yes, hit. yes. Were there? Wait, I have a question. Were there bees? Was there a sequence yes. of bees? His hand gets covered with bees. Fucking yeah. so good. Oh, like this is. There was a thread from. I, I want to say. Oh boy, who was the thread from? I think it was. I think it was a Minofsky article, who is a, an anime and manga like critic on Twitter. Minofsky, um, Minofsky, M-I-N-O-V-S-K-Y article. It's a, it's a Gundam joke because Minofsky particles are a big thing. Uh, anyway, uh, they made a or he made a, a thread that was like about how important it was that science fiction have what at first feels like seemingly meaningless or or in you know uh, un ununfoldable un un um alleg- like non allegorical uh visuals that like that you can just be stopped in your tracks by something and then later you can come back to it and like try to unpack it but just like why the fuck are there big heads in the orange smoke in Vegas <laughs> is is like one of the things that science fiction can do yeah. that can just totally floor you as a viewer and like and kind of decenter you so that you are experiencing the film in a different way than if you were just like Oh, then he comes to Vegas, and then he goes to see Deckard. Like, that's just not as good. Um, but the, the scene that I'm going to call out is the sequence where I believe it is Deckard being interrogated by Neander Wallace. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that that's the sequence. Uh, and he's in the room with – there's, like, water all around them. They're sitting in, the, like, a, almost like an island in a single room, uh, and the light is – is moving around the room and their faces are slipping very subtly, like very, not subtly because they go really dark and really light, but very like, um, not just slowly, like the motion, the, the, not just the speed, but the, the way color is, is fading in and out as the light is fading in and out makes it not just feel like someone is flipping the light switches on and off, or not just that someone is like turning a dial and turning off the light and then turning it back on. Um, but it, it, it almost feels as if light itself is fading from that part of the room. Uh, and it just kind of slowly comes down to be dark. Uh, and there's two things I like about it. One is it again, feels like, um, a response to the lighting in the initial film in, in Blade Runner one, uh, Partially because, like, that film is filled with nonsense lighting. <laughs> like, that film is constantly the the Ridley Scott thing we talked about before, which is lights coming in through fans for no reason. Like, you think about... Um, Neon tube uh, umbrella handles. Right, totally. Neon tube umbrella handles. Uh, but especially the apartment of... Um, uh, what the hell is his name? Why am I blanking on Toymaker's name? JF Sebastian. Oh yeah, yeah. Sebastian's Sebastian's apartment, uh, where like literally there will just be three spotlights pointing in through an out <laughs> an exterior window for some reason, um, uh, or or in the Tyrell office where there was the kind of like gleaming uh like light of light reflected on water all around the the walls, and so this felt like something Wallace would have cooked up or hired someone to cook up to be like. My office is better than Tyrell's office. <laughs> it has this weird rotating well, light. But more importantly, this, the reason I actually really love it is just I think that it it really brought out, and maybe this is why I ended up not minding Ford so much, is it forced you to pay incredibly close attention to facial 
expression uh, in those scenes because the second any amount of light was there, you were looking for expression. You were, like your eyes were guided to their face uh, because you wanted to as soon as possible see what that character thought of what the other character just said. And as the light faded away, you stuck with it. You like leaned forward, like someone looking out of a train, you know, looking back as you're waving to your friend as they disappear. Like I don't want to stop looking at you. I want to see you until I can't see you anymore. And that effect like brought what was I think in terms of its writing and in terms of its performance kind of middle of the road scene and turned it into something that felt like it had a lot of intensity and a lot of buy-in for me as a viewer because I just want I was so like mechanically attached to what was going on my my behavior as a viewer shifted because of the way the lighting worked um and so that's why I just like hey you did it Roger Deakins like you did a good scene that that on paper seemed really silly and and made it something that I I couldn't stop paying attention to so I know he's listening. One, I know he's a big fan. But one real quick thing, um, <laughs> yes. he, he like, yeah, he's no, he's he's talking to his webmaster right now, and he's like, there is. I have found the greatest forum uh, on earth. Have you heard uh-huh. of Discourse dot zone? Oh, uh-huh. uh, that's us. Yeah, uh, no. So the, one of the things I really like about the interior sequences at Wallace is that um, I love the like warm dry like almost like the way you would imagine the interior of a pyramid uh a lit pyramid obviously but like it feels and also in terms of the angles right there's a lot of like steep raked angles uh right. the characters are walking up and down but it feels like you are on the inside of uh honestly like 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 a pyramid or something and what i like about it is that again where tyrell's corporate headquarters is presented as um you know the the home of the high priest of the sun god, right? <laughs> at, at twilight, you right. know the sun is always uh, fading through the windows uh, at Tyrell's corporation. Um, in Wallace's era, you are now like there is no hint of an external existence out here. You are entombed with the pharaoh uh, in, in all these sequences, yeah. and so there is at once a greater like sense of opulence and power uh, and it, like immunity in some ways in these sequences but i think also despite the water something very dead uh mm. about those interiors and the way they're lit uh yeah. and and i i just love the juxtaposition which is again like another one of the very clever ways that the movie is nodding to the previous work and finding similar like using similar modes of expression to say new things it feels like every room that Wallace walks into was built a moment before he walked into it <laughs> and then disposed of the second he leaves. Whereas Tyrell's office felt like, you know, Tyrell's office and his home, when they visit him, in, when, when Batty goes to kill him in the original, like, oh, he lives there. He's playing chess with a friend. Like, there's, there's like, a, glasses with, with, you know, alcohol in them or whatever. Uh, and his desk at work also feels like, ah, he built this so that this is his grand vision of of what uh, a, a, the perfect office looks like. I am the, I am Apollo on high. Welcome to my, to see my domain. And here it's like, fucking Neander Wallace doesn't give a fuck about any of these rooms. Like they're going to serve his purpose. They're going to make him feel good while he's in them. And then he's going to move on. Uh, and like, there's no, you're totally right. Like not only does it feel dead, it all feels so impermanent um, in a way that's like, none of this feels like it's what Wallace cares about. Like none of this, he isn't building a home on earth. He's ready to go. He's ready to leave. Um, there's a gaudiness this, to it too that, yes. that is very 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 apparent and maybe it's even more with his sort of fashion choices than than even oh his spaces God. but like i'd forgotten about them somehow he's wearing like 
a kimono in in <laughs> like a lot of, of of these scenes and it is it is both playing on the silicon tech bro eastern you know yeah. eating up eastern philosophy and kind of pooping it out as as he goes you know the, the, as he mm-hmm. kind of walks about the room and and does his his uh, godlike routine but it's very like it's almost self-conscious in a lot of ways. It's almost like I, I clearly am oh, that's amazing in so many ways, but but do, does he really think that? Like, or, he is, really or is he really it? just sort of trying to hide something? There, there is a sense right. that I got that he's very deliberately self-conscious about the actions that he takes, at least around other people, if not around only when love is there. Yeah, I guess we don't really see him mm, by him. Even when, yeah, it's hard to say. It's hard to say what he even thinks of as by himself, right? Yeah. Um, briefly, since you mentioned the kimono he wears, and and you know, there's a. I think Joy at one point is also wearing a Chinese style dress. I know that kimonos aren't Chinese style. I'm saying on top of the kimono, yeah, yeah. Joy in one another season Eastern wearing, cultures. Yeah. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, the uh, there's a great article over on Motherboard called "Cyberpunk Cities Fetishize Asian Culture But Have No Asians" by Sarah Emerson, which is just like about the thing that the head says it is right, which is like. Outside of Dave Batista, who's part Filipino um, and who was killed basically immediately, there are a couple of other Asian characters in the background in this film. Um, and like the disconnect, obviously, one, it's just like, hey, if you're using lots of Asian stuff for color, but you're not including actual Asians, then maybe you fucked up because what you're doing is gesturing towards some exotic other in order to, to add a splash of color and flair and, and like a feeling of your, you've been transported to a different world. That's, and the way you know that is there's Chinese writing now. Um, but the second thing is just like in, in terms of internal consistency, it's like if these cultures did have such a big influence on this world, where are all the Asian people at? Um, and it's not even like they even gesture towards it. They don't even say like, oh, and of course, you know, this is a world in which, you know, China colonized the West Coast and then they were in positions of power and the Chinese were all able to bo- go to the off-world colonies. Like there's not even lip service paid to it. There just aren't any, you know, Asian American or, you know, or Asian actors, uh, actors of Asian descent in any way uh, in major roles in this film, despite the fact that it, it remains as the original did coded with with you know asian iconography and or or a filtered down version of of what we think of as eastern iconography and and language um the other thing there is just like when gibson conceives of the world of noromancer as being dripping in the signifiers of 1980s east asia it's partially because companies like sony are getting popular um it's because japan was in this bubble economy driven largely by new luxury uh electronics that were coming to new audiences or new you know new consumers there was this whole new influx of cash uh and it seemed at the time that japan had uh as a a national economy not japanese people but the japanese economy had its handle on uh emerging technologies in a way that now like yes japan has lots of tech companies so does korea so does you know sweden so does america so do a lot of places and so this notion of like oh the east is where technology happens is not just outdated but like not just boring but like just wrong-headed um and so that was a to me a huge bummer because like 
we've had lots of time to get better at that. Uh, and, and so like, not only were there's not a lot of people of color in that film, not only does it treat, you know, women as fairly disposable and certainly, certainly does not give them, uh, the kind of speaking parts necessary to explore those issues as well as they could or should. It also just, it, it fucks up on this, this old Orientalism problem that cyberpunk has dealt with for so fucking long. And in that way it was, a, it was a big disappointment, um, because I just wanted it to, I wanted it to do better. Like it did better with so many things. And this one, thing it's just like ah you were not this one thing these three things about <laughs> uh, all about identity all about representation um just uh, big misses right and i've seen a lot of criticism from uh, trans folks kind of saying there's a lot of gender essentialism that's really yeah, kind of core I, to some of the story beats there i i think i'm so far into carolyn's read on that which is like the core message is anti-gender essentialist in terms of like it's not about biolog- what a biological woman is, that it is, like, I, I guess the thing that, the, okay, I here's like what I'll actually read. say I, is, I like her hopeful their response, read, for sure. The, res- the response of other trans women does not, uh, rather, Carolyn's, Carolyn's writing does not undo or mute or silence those res- that response from the other, from other trans women. Right. What I should take away from that is that if that is the read that I want, then, then it should have been better represented for those other trans viewers to be able to take away the same thing that Carolyn did. Like the fact that they had that experience is true and that they did not, if that was the thing that, that, uh, you know, uh, Villeneuve wanted you to take away, then maybe he didn't communicate it clearly enough because the response, that negative response of like, Hey, there's lots of biological essentialism in this movie suggests something about the movie, not about the viewer. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I definitely can see, you know, some folks uh, having that response that it is gender essentialist and, you know, sort of in the, in the nitty gritty, in the, in the plot beats, in the sort of, in the details. And you could, you could come out with, you know, I'm I'm just saying like, I could, I can certainly see both ways here. You could come out with a more positive message if you have that particular read in this sort of long view versus those, you know, kind of in the moment, in the beats, in the. Right. It's a movie about like, can we reunite this man with his biological daughter and the reason that is valuable. And women's value comes very much from their uteruses. Like that kind of, from their, you know, that is what makes a woman is, in fact, like it, there are people who say in this movie the way that you can tell she's a real person is because she gave birth, right? Exactly. Like I totally, totally. Yeah. And again, I, I think that the the purpose of the film is to undercut that. But if you if so many people have seen this movie and don't see that, then that's not on them for missing the point. Yeah. Like I have no problem with a with a work being a little more obvious when what it's try if it is trying to be subversive. Like there is value in subtlety. I like subtle well, things myself. But like, and I think this is where your failure to. Uh like flesh out the resistance really blows up in your face right. because right. like if they're the voice of resistance and political opposition, the principles they state are, ah, one of our kind gave birth, biological <laughs> right. birth. Right. And therefore we're people at which point we somehow wound the clock back past Blade Runner. I think Runner. that they're woke is the problem, Rob. <laughs> that's the thing. Like, I think that that's again, like, the thing that we needed from them wasn't for them to have a good ideology. Like, I don't need the resistance to be politically pure and right. I need, if they're politically wrong, for that to be better foregrounded so that what we have yeah. is a character who says, y'all missed the point too, instead of it just being on the viewer to make that that 
jump, you know, to make that that value call themselves. Or or I might not need it. I was able to find that myself. But I think that the film may have been stronger if someone in there had been more explicit about that sort of like, no, actually, I disagree with the resistance. Instead of it just being a silent shot of Ryan Gosling looking at a big advertisement for the X he bought once, you know? (laughs) That's my problem with with this movie as a whole. Again, saying this as somebody who really enjoyed it and really enjoyed a lot of parts of it, it, I just don't think the movie is as carefully put together as as you're reading it. Like, I, I actually don't think these are incredibly, you know, subtly put together machinations that show that the movie's undercutting these things. I think it maybe wanted to do that and then just didn't do the work. Yeah, it didn't, I, it didn't show the work of the math, you know, that kind of thing. But. Yeah, I think we're going to agree to disagree on that. Like, I walked out of that film with that read. Like, that wasn't... I walked out of that film, like, or at every moment early in the movie is when I started thinking about it as being a movie about whether or not the subjective values that we have under capitalism as people who are marginalized, if they matter. Like, the that comes up as soon as it's clear that Officer K is a replicant, but also a replicant who has preferences. He says he doesn't like a book. He says that he, he you know, he buys a gift for his, uh, quote-unquote, a gift for his, again, the, the, the AI woman he purchased. Right. Um, he's making choices despite being told, despite the fact that we're told that he can't run away and that he can't have choice. Um, and so immediately for me, this was going to be a film, not necessarily about, but the lens that I wanted to, to work through the film with was how do people create value for themselves how do people decide what is good and what is bad inside of a system in which choice is limited at the very least uh and inside of a system in which you can no one in that in this movie lives an ethical life like no one in this movie there is no ethical existence under blade runner capitalism (laughs) like at all full stop like there is nobody is good in this movie in the in the modern sense of good even the you know even deckard's daughter locked away is still with her power literally, glove. right with the power glove, yeah. <laughs> she is the wizard <laughs> she is I the like wizard her. i think she's yeah, well, a she's, good wizard well, she's likable but she's likable but she's she, okay so like the way she <laughs> like, frames oh, what she man. does she's like Dude. the dark giver Right, yeah. where she's like, oh, I, I just want to create. It. I want to create nice memories and backstories for these slave creatures that we yes. mass produce. That is literally and what she does. Don't you if think somebody some else of this did is it, through her trauma though, like from things she's experienced, don't you think some of this is right, her I mean, working does... through that? Boy, I mean, that's a lot if, to work. If what I'm doing is a jump. Then also this is, which is fine. Like I think we're both allowed this jump. I'll give but, you this jump right. if you give me my subjective okay. jump. But yeah, no, like and also, like, and also, I think there's a limit to working through trauma. I think working through trauma is an important thing. But I think this is worth saying, which is <laughs> if working through your trauma is enabling the the creation of an underclass, you got to take the hit. Like <laughs> I, I, I was working true. through stuff doesn't fly at Nuremberg. Like <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. I. Uh, I wasn't trying to make that that, particular comparison. No, 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 but I think that's also true. I think that that's also true for every character in this movie. Like, Kay is also working through some shit because he thought he wasn't a real boy until suddenly there was this notion that he was a real boy and then has to work through what real is. Like, that is the core conflict for him in the film. Uh, But but he also does terrible shit in this movie. Like, (laughs) it opens with him murdering a guy who's doing who's not only doing nothing wrong, but who is contributing to the ongoing existence of people by but being But his farmer. kind runs. Right, right, exactly. And then he but his kind his runs. 
just it was yeah. so rude yeah. it was That's so true. fucking rude and but, he didn't like the soup but the soup sounded like it was probably okay well was, was better delicious. than the grub uh <laughs> So, yeah, no, like, I, I think she is as close as we get to a good person uh, in this story. But, yeah. like, I would say her gifts, the things she's trying to do, are poisoned by the systems in which she's doing them. Well, also, um, she's basically a game a designer, good... right? In a lot of ways. She's a game designer who's locked in prison. She's, like, she's a easy... game designer who can only make loot boxes. That's There it is. <laughs> oh. oh, depressing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I think it's also just, like, it's easy to live, not easy, but like when all you can do is exist in the virtual space, when all you can do is create spaces for yourself and you don't get, you don't exist in downtown Los Angeles or in the junk pits of San Diego yeah. or on an off-world colony, like you're going to be, you're going to turn out maybe okay, you know, or not okay, but like you're not going to be as abrasive as the people are in those spaces. Yeah. And I think that to me was also what was important about her contributing directly to this oppression is contribution to the marginalization of people is not always ugly like sometimes it's very attractive um the propagandists of of the worst regimes in history made really good art and that is terrifying like uh i'm not saying that she's goebbels but like there is definitely a thing there that is like oh she's her presence on screen is so pleasing and what she do what she does is not and like that disconnect is really interesting to me um I don't know, like, the fact that we're having these conversations is why I think the film works, because the thing that I thought I was going to go see four, four years ago when this was announced or whenever was going to be closer to the work that Scott has done over the last decade, which has been mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. you know, going for me, for me, my turn with Ridley Scott was the terrible Robin Hood movie he made. That was <laughs> when I gave up hope. I don't know if either of you saw that movie. Oh, I, I recently watched it. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, the Russell Crowe one? Yeah, okay. the one that is like that is explicit, pretty he explicitly. He invents the Magna Carta, and oh. also the Magna Carta is is about uh, states' rights. Oh. Um, is is oh, which you know there's some there's some analogy you can make there, but really it's about like getting rid of Obama. That's Fuck. basically what that movie is about. Oh, is um, it? Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a very Tea Party movie, man. Like oh. it's all about taxes, and it's all about like getting getting rid of big government out of the the nice folksy backwoods of England. Um, but even beyond that, like thinking about movies like Prometheus and Alien Covenant, which were I enjoyed more than most people, probably. Uh, like you, Danielle, I think Prometheus is... I actually really is... like Prometheus. I do. I enjoy Prometheus. I don't know that I really like it, because what I want... The thing that trans the thing that goes from I enjoy it to I really like it is being able to have two-hour-long conversations about what whether or not it successfully achieves the themes it seems like it's trying sure, to set out. Sure. Um, and that's the thing or like maybe not the difference between enjoy and like but the difference between enjoying a, a watching experience and a film that sticks with me and a film that i know i want to revisit and want to keep working through my feelings on like you know when i first saw blade runner as a teen i didn't see that there was anything wrong with the, the love scene between rachel and harrison ford and like it is a good thing that at some point I developed enough as a person to see that scene is <laughs> fucked. Yeah. Um, and, and I hope I have a, the same relationship with Blade Runner 2049. I hope that there's stuff that I never saw in it mm. in, for another 10 years that I see. I'm like, oh, wow, there's this whole, there's a whole Monarchy is good, here. actually. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Neo-reactionary. monarchy. Uh, yes. No, so there's something I'm dying to bring up with you guys, though, because I'm, I'm, sure. I'm really curious to hear your take. One of the big surprises with this movie for me is the point 
at which it seamlessly morphs back into drive. Oh, yeah. Like, it's always towing that line, like, because Gosling is sort of, like, playing a similar sort of, like, purpose-driven character. Like, yeah. a procedure-driven character. Go- like somebody Gosselbot. Like, Can we call him Gosselbot? Yeah, that he's in his sure. Gosselbot okay, mode. Um, Instead and so of the- Gosland. <laughs> Those are the two modes. The first act is, like, a Blade Runner mystery story set in the same universe, but, like, it's kind of telling its own story. The second act is seeing how that, like ties together like the like really understanding the the saga of of what happened for uh Deckard and Rachel and how that ties into the present. And the third act is driver but with killer robots. <laughs> um are you specifically talking about the fight scene with love and like the whole like the entire the fun- yeah, the like. Where are you starting? Act three is what my question is. Okay, so for me, Act three begins with basically immediately after uh, Wallace's interview with Deckard ends. Okay, sure. That is the end of Act two, uh, and we are now into the final act, uh, which is Gosling finding what his purpose is for this one last, like this one last job. Right? Yeah. Like, how is he going to close out the story? What's he going to do that now that like his former existence is impossible? Right. Um, and the answer is to reenact the fight scene from Driver. <laughs> I was going to say, or from Drive, the 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 from, ocean from one, right? The one at the at the yeah, like the one at the beach, right? Yeah, literally, like drive someone off the road, <laughs> and then have this like really epic and brooding like. I can't remember if there was a fight and drive to be honest, no, I think or whether he just knocked him into the ocean. Yeah, uh, but but this is, I kind of liked it. It was just so it was. It felt like it was almost a, like the movie had turned into something else. Uh, and I'm not sure that's a bad thing, but I was surprised at both how directly the movie is sort of echoing what we saw in Drive, which is yeah. that Gosling goes into sort of a terminal dive, like. He no longer has any hope of him getting out of the situation, so he's going to take out as many enemies as possible uh, on his on his way down. Um, and then, literally, we have him basically like running someone into the uh, Pacific Ocean off the coast of Los Angeles. Right, is literally uh, and, the same place. That's true. Yeah, uh, and then, but what, but what I do love about the sequence, though, in addition to just the claustrophobia of the interior of that flooding car, um, it really does feel like... Okay, so one of the things I, I kind of dig about the Pacific Ocean is just that, like, at night, that is a menacing ocean for reasons I can't mm-hmm. fully like. It's different than the Atlantic. Like, if you stand on like the California coast, there is just an expanse of like utter darkness, and like it feels like the world just ends. Like it just sort of falls off. Right. And like literally, that is where this fight takes place. They are on some sort of like concrete like berm uh, yeah, the, instead weird. of a beach, and it's the world hard falls to tell- off. It's hard to tell, right, it's hard to tell where there is solid ground, and I don't just mean because the ocean is there. Like, you're right, it feels like the world is flat. Like, at some point there's ocean, then there's this thing that they can stand on, and then beyond that there is nothing. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I, I, what a, what a interesting way to end, like, and specifically for me, the thing that that was such a relief about was that the Roy Batty-Deckard fight scene is, is similarly strange and hard to parse and, like, hard to work out who you're rooting for, if anybody. Um, and then my fear with this film had been, again, like I was saying, was the, that it would be a more modern Ridley Scott film. Um, but specifically, the, the other way about that is, like, a more modern 
action film. I expected rapid cuts. I expected like over, you know, over choreographed fight sequences. <laughs> um, and I'm so relieved we didn't get that film. Um, yeah, no Jason Bourne d- in here for sure. Right, which I like Jason Bourne movies, but that's not what I wanted from this yeah. film. Like, I wanted something that was slowly paced and that when fighting happened, it felt dangerous yes. and felt hard to predict um like danielle you and i this year both got a a, a kick out of um uh, atomic blonde was atomic blonde's yes. fight scene which is similarly brutal but is also still a little more aestheticized um a little more clear you could see what's happening you see every bloody blow whereas here this fight scene is just like there's a lot you miss there's a lot of like did, who just got stabbed who just got hit like they're both just taking it out on each other and it sucks and i love it yes yeah, it's really. What did you think, good. Danielle? As the as the professional, as the person here who's been in more fights than either of us. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I I really liked it a lot. It, it served well as as something of a climax, uh, at least in terms of of you know the action part of our half action half art house movie that uh that has been the Blade Runner <laughs> tradition ever you know ever yeah. since. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I, I found it very very satisfying and very very uh, well choreographed uh, without feeling overly choreographed, like you said, and. Brutal in the right way, uh, which so few movie fight scenes actually kind of make you feel that. They actually make you right. feel the weight of a punch or the weight of a kick or just how miserable uh, the feeling of drowning could be or the feeling of, of just getting beat up, just how absolutely miserable and painful that feeling is. Uh, so, yeah, I, I dug that. Of course, I like the violence. I mean, you know, shocker. But <laughs> it does make me think a little bit... Uh, I don't know. I don't know yet how I feel about love as a character. Uh, yeah, me I just either. don't really know where I stand on her and how much agency she has, how much she is an homage to to Rachel's character, even if she right. was absolutely, you know, took completely different actions. But something about the way she moves, something about the way she looks, something about the way she is sort of the right hand totally man right-hand. of the of the corporate mm-hmm. jerk, you know, at least at first. Um she feels like a mirror image, like a really unhinged Rachel in a lot of ways. Right, but I, right. again, I, I really am still kind of working through my feelings on where yeah, she, she is. She is the, the character who I'm most curious about what I feel about her in a decade. Yeah. Um, because, you know, the this is the same thing that happened with Blade Runner. So many of the smart, uh, you know, uh, criticisms and, and the smart uh, unpackings of Blade Runner took years to come out right um and as especially from a mass audience right like it it took a long time for people to like blade runner at all enough for there to be blade runner 2049 get greenlit and have a budget and have a an up-and-coming director who who you know is is just poised to to you know move over into the mainstream um god yeah and if i could just put its reins tiniest aside i promise this will be super quick um i remember in grad school taking some screenwriting classes and uh, one of the books i used was from an earlier time and it was definitely well you know looking at genre blending a blade runner was such a you know just not a success it really just failed in both its noir and its sci-fi and it was always so funny to me to read that in the you know mid-2000s being like what are you talking about so, yeah, sorry, a little aside, little aside. No, 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 that's exactly what No, that's what great. I mean. So it was like a textbook, like, don't do this, kids. <laughs> don't Literally do this. in a textbook, yeah. <laughs> right, the most influential uh, sci- like cyberpunk film that ever came out. Yeah, yeah don't do that. <laughs> um, but no, that's the same thing. It's like, I'm curious 
what I'll think about Love in a decade because I just can't quite every take I see on her, whether it's celebratory or critical, has not has left me wanting more. Like I've seen people say that she is the like the mean bitch heart of of the the true like woman protagonist of this film, and I've seen people say that she is like the best example of how poorly the film treats women. Um, and I don't know, and even beyond the she representational also- stuff. I don't know what to feel about her. Yeah. Also, just she might also be the actual only true revolutionary in the film. <laughs> because one of the things she says, like when she deals with the, the, the police captain, uh, is something to the effect of you see a change coming and your little mind can't come, or, or something like right, that. But like, right, right, right. love has a different agenda. And I'm not sure it's Wallace's. Like, yeah, Wallace wants. Uh, biological uh, birth because he wants to mass produce his slaves. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure that's what love wants. What yeah. love seems to want is maybe a more fundamental tra- like uh, transformation. And like, yeah. is Wallace the end to that mean? Because again, like there are scenes that like heavily imply she is working on her own recognizance uh, toward her own ends. So I do think like she is kind of, she's at once Rachel and a little bit of gaff. Uh, oh, sort of an right. oddly sure. no, like an oddly omniscient character <laughs> whose yeah. motivations are yeah. uh, completely a black box. Well, she doesn't leave little unicorns. She li- leaves uh, cluster bombs. Little dead bodies. She does. She lives little dead bodies yeah. around. That's how, that's how uh, Kay knows. That I know what's in your head because yeah. I blew it apart. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Totally. That's yeah, I don't point. know. I think she's, she's interesting and I the thing about her character when I left that movie was I definitely felt like, again, a decade from now, not just I'd feel different, but I'd like slap my forehead, I'd face palm and go, like, oh, how didn't we know at the time? Why didn't we talk about love like XYZ? How had we not figured out what was happening with that character? Again, either for the benefit of the film's, you know, the strength or, or towards its weakness. Like, I, who knows? Um, such an interesting <clears throat> and, and a great, uh, like, a fantastic, fantastic acting yeah. uh, on the part of uh, Sylvia Hoeks. Like, just super chilling. Um, this is a movie that, like, we already talked about how affectless Gosling can be, but, like, we should really be talking about how affectless, but also how driven uh, Sylvia Hoek uh, was as as love. Um, yeah, it, it, I want to read probably my favorite uh, woman performance in the movie. Next to again, next to Robin Wright, I actually think she did a lot more with a fairly thankless role yeah. than yeah, uh, yeah. So one of the things I said at the start here was that I was worried that uh, I liked that Villeneuve sort of had maybe an icier view of both film and just the genre. Um, and that there would not be as much urge to sort of sanctify or romanticize what Blade Runner is. And I say that, but then I think about the final image of the film, or the final <laughs> moments of the film, which is mm-hmm. a character I'm having a hard time squaring with what I know of the Blade Runner universe and its aesthetic. Uh, and you said that it's, it's literally the final shot of Cowboy Bebop, which it basically is. But we have yeah. a character, his noble work completed... Mm-hmm. expiring in the snow, heavily implied expiring in a freshly fallen snow. And we get a God's eye view of this character as implied. Their soul ascends to grace. Um, <laughs> right, the slow zoom out basically. Right, right. And I'm like, is this Blade Runner? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Right. Like I, I, oh, it's hard to say. Um, I, I, 
don't I don't think his soul ascends to grace. Like that's the and, and then maybe that's the most maybe that's the more nihilistic take is like you idiot, you didn't win anything. <laughs> you didn't get anything for yourself or for anybody else. Like whatever happiness you think you have because you did the thing that was right in your heart even though you knew it was you know objectively useless you 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 compl- it did nothing it did nothing like you just didn't there's no revolution coming i don't believe that this is the film where like and then that's the thing that was the act that made things better for everybody this one act of humanity and selfless it's like no that's not what this movie is um in which case it just feels empty right so but i don't know like I don't think that that camera movement was insincere either. Mm. So maybe you were right. Maybe they, maybe it is just not as, uh, not as deep as all that. Maybe they did the, maybe, you know, they were like, ah, oh, and that was it. He did a good thing. The end. <laughs> he did a man's work, sir. And, right. that- <laughs> right, <exactly. laughs> and now you're dead in the snow. But I, I do like it better, but, but oh, okay, here's a count. Yeah. Here's the, yeah, here's the, yeah, exactly. Here's the counterpoint though is, is it a more Blade Runner ending than the ending of Blade Runner? Oh. Which is, they get away, like, and then they drove away. And depending Isn't on the that... cut, maybe they ended up in the woods with some cool voiceover. Right. Some, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Like, maybe the ending of Blade Runner has always not been very Blade Runnery. <sighs> like, in this case, it's a dead guy in the snow who achieves nothing. Isn't that more in line with the bulk of Blade Runner than? Well, okay, okay. Let me. This is uh, this is just off the top of my head because now I'm thinking about this and actually engaging with it. So the end mm. of Blade Runner, at least the final cut and the director's cut, yeah. is that they're escaping to a dubious freedom. Gaff already knows what's in their heads. Like he already right, knows this right, is going right. to happen. They're going to die um, in a few years, presumably. Yeah. Uh, so they're either being let go to die in a few years, or they're running away to a life of being hunted. Right. Uh, which is certainly what 2049 sort of implies about the ultimate fate of the Nexus Sevens. Um, but in this movie, so I mean, we want to go really Nexus like, Sixes, I think. I think they skip a generation. Yeah, they go to eight. Or at least in they this from, movie, it's eight. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, or, is it, but Rachel's not a seven. Nexus Six. She's right. a seven. She you're and right. Deckard are you're sevens. Right. You're right. Um, and then K is an eight, right? Is that? Yes. I'm now not sure. Well, or is he a nine? In the fiction of, Love of the... Love is a nine. Yeah. Okay. We're, we're going full t- Star Wars technical manual. I know. Oh, we have to Look, move on. Uh, the thing so... that I like... The, here's the thing that I like. Here, I'm just say this. Roy Batty is definitely a six. I love the notion that it jumps from six to eight or six to nine because of the way the Apple, the iPhone just jumped from eight to ten because it is totally <laughs> some bullshit Silicon Valley nonsense. That's all. Yep. Um, Makes but, sense. But, okay, so, like... He has not accomplished anything to an extent, but, like, what he has done is, like, he's at least found a way to be at peace with himself, right? Like, if the question is, all these forms of resistance re- revolution he's seen leave people, like, hunted or just waiting to be disposed of or make them part of a incredibly ill-conceived revolutionary <laughs> movement. Uh-huh. Um, and so, like, is the ending actually sort of both redemptive for the character but kind of hopeless for the universe in that, like... Oh, his resistance is internal. Like, he right. found freedom, or the only freedom you can have in this world, which is internal. That, like, he is, he has resisted, and he is dying, but he is no longer compromised with that system. Like, the only, the only uh, ethical life under capitalism is death? <laughs> ah. 
it's dark, right? Like, I don't know. I, 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 yeah. Um, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know that there is a way for me to square that ending with the rest of the film in any way that isn't just childish. Yeah, I mean, because isn't that the surface level reading? That, that he, he, he did the heroic thing. The, the lady and will now meet her real father and hooray. Yeah, I think that's the surface. I do think that's the surface level reading. But then you take that the next step. It's like, why does he do it? And is it because he's just like, that's what a hero would, that's what joy would Or is would it because those do. are his memories and he feels a connection there? Is that the Yeah, I think that, I definitely think I mean, that, I, I, like. I do think that the thought is his connection. He believes that his connection to Deckard is genuine, even if Deckard doesn't share those memories. Like, he has those memories. Those memories mean something to him, and that is enough. Like, there's that sequence where Deckard straight up says, like, why are you doing this for me? And he just don't even worry about it. Like, like, I don't want to get uh, into it. <laughs> yeah. All right, buddy, yeah. we had a good time with Elvis, so... <laughs> You know. So now we're buds. Now we're bros. They, now we're bros. <laughs> now you're my dad. Um, yeah. Oh my god! Is know. Swingers part of the Blade Runner verse? Oh it's all an extended. God. Well, <laughs> Tyrell invented NHL '94, <laughs> uh, which they played in Swingers. So. Oh my god! He's a he's a game designer. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't have like a. I really do wish I had a nice like. Put a cap on the ending. I do. I mean, again, the thing that I do have is just like, oh, he. I have one in terms of what it is for K, which is in in his final moments. He knew he was dying anyway. He knew he was not going to make it. Right. Like that's the actual thing to remember here is he was not going to go anywhere and get stitched up and live a happy life. And so in his final moments, he decided to live true to what he believed was like the thing that he that was true for him, even if it wasn't true for the rest of the world, even if he wasn't Deckard's biological son, he was going to do right by his dad. Um, and like, I'm, then I'm going to die because that's what my options are. It's that or turn myself into the cops and they're just going to kill me. Um, and so like that, I think is the closest I have to a read for him, but I don't think that that, that, that means that the, the film leaves us with a praxis. Like, I don't think that the message is simply go out in the world and get yours, find the people you care about and care about them. And it doesn't matter that the world is on fire. At least you have friends. Like, I don't think that's the message. Um, but I do think that the message is maybe about how these are what our possibility, that this is what the possibility space looks like right now, that the possibility space is ill-conceived revolution is being completely, uh, is being non-abrasive, but uh, contributing to the oppression of others is being very abrasive and openly <laughs> contributing to the oppression of others, being a person who hurts other people in your group uh, for self-gain or like throwing yourself at, you know, I, I guess maybe it's 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 almost a little bit. Um, uh, God, who is, what is the philosopher's name? What is the the? Uh, oh, why am I losing this? The um, oh, someone needs to someone needs to jumpstart <laughs> me. The, what's the, the, the myth of Sisyphus? Uh, 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 okay. Camus, Camus, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Camus' myth of Sisyphus, which is like the only meaning. So, the myth of Sisyphus is a is a short essay by Albert Camus, who who opens by saying the only question that means anything in philosophy is why should we keep living? Basically, why do we decide to keep living in the face of abject horror of the abject horror that is suffering of of the fact that the world is fucked and that even when the world isn't fucked, we all suffer constantly. Why do we choose to live? And for Camus, it's there has to be a little bit of absurd joy in pushing back against the nothing. Uh, we have to, the only way to live a good life is to revel 
in the absurdity that we are living and finding some value in the day-to-day, even though we know that we are specks of dust on a planet that doesn't matter, in the depths of space that has no more importance than any other empty dirt world out there. Um, And that, like, nope, I'm going to live for me. Uh, And I think that that is maybe the only, that, like, this, like, minor revolution, this personal revolution is the only thing to take away. But I don't think that that's going to be, like, that's not going to change the world, right? That's my problem with Camus is, like, that isn't an existentialism that leads to more, like, to help those children in San Diego. Yeah. Um, And I don't think the movie has anything to say about how to help the children in San Diego. And that's a bummer. Yeah. Sorry for that whole spiel there. I had to find it. It sometimes it takes a while for me to boot up the parts of my brain I've put in archive because I stopped being a, a philosophy student. Yeah, I d- don't don't feel bad. I, I was a philosophy major, and I, I it's it's so far back and so dusty. And it was if before you find it was my classical the Greek in there while you're you know yeah. it was the blackout happened <laughs> it was before the blackout. And, yeah. uh, God, yeah, we've gone for two hours and ten minutes. I think we might be there i think we might be there we're, we're coming up on the running time of the film so what was the running time of the film could we beat oh, it no that was like three hours. no we are not we're not even no, close. we're not oh, that's right. not. that movie was so long i forgot about how long <laughs> that did, movie was. it didn't feel long it did not feel no, long to me i was like I that I movie <laughs> i didn't pee that is that should be the recommendation movie. that's like you, we've oh, been talking shit. about reviews for what well, you know behind the curtain kind of stuff right but like yeah, i yeah. didn't pee should be like the highest level of recommendation oh. for a long thing. Look, hey, my partner was like, "There's no way I'm making it through this movie." Oh yeah, she uh. did because it was that gripping. <sighs> did wait? Did did AV Club join Gizmodo? Oh god, so don't even get me started, dude. <laughs> okay, the AV Club with its beautiful CMS, oh. yeah. uh, especially for the TV club and like movie yeah. reviews that was so searchable it was gorgeous. and yeah. Kinja's great at things. I love Kinja. Kinja's fantastic blogging platform. Thank you, Kinja. Uh, yeah, get that's some good ass Kinja out there. I'm not sure though that AV Club <laughs> makes for good ass Kinja. Um, I bring this up because I I just saw a news story that said Blade Runner 2049 was originally four hours long. Oh lord! Oh fuck! The final cut's going to be glorious. Oh, it's going to be so much. It's going to be a it's six hour so miniseries. That's what it, that's what I it's going to be. Why didn't they? I'm surprised that they didn't release it as two films. Yeah, I'm glad they I mean, didn't. Maybe the extra hour sucks. Maybe it's all Harrison Ford like, not emoting yeah. to the daughter. That's the whole thing. It's an hour. Of <laughs> or that. it's like it, it's like um, <laughs> it's like very thing. last man on earth, or um, <laughs> yeah, where he's just like hanging around Vegas. Yeah. And like performing with the holo. Oh my illnesses. god! Like just an Ever. hour of him. Joe Walker, the editor, says that uh, – Walker says a lot of the stuff that got cut from this four-hour cut was mostly, quote, a lot of connective tissue and bridges. And they also (laughs) pared the dialogue down to the minimum amount you could get away with, Mm. which suggests that nothing extremely crucial was trimmed away. That's not what that suggests to me. Not even a little bit. I want that connective tissue. I want those bridges. Let me see them bridges. Well, and also, uh, this is just a really small, like, this is a random thought that's been on my mind. Um, Because, and it's related to the fact I'm watching season uh, four of The Wire. Which is that uh, one of the things I love about that series is, like, it is such, and and particularly that season, it is such a language-driven show. Uh, Right. it It is different American dialects from within the same city. 
mm. uh, just different ways people talk and express themselves. It's the music of uh, different forms of the English language. It's fantastic. Um, I do kind of wonder if, like, again, like, so many big-budget movies move away from, like, being dependent on dialogue at all, which, yeah. as a writer, both is, like, right. frustrating. But also, does that encourage... Uh, not just like, yeah, look, you can cast, like, that, that doesn't necessarily have to do anything with casting. Uh, you can still, like, if, you, if you're creating characters that barely speak anyway, you can cast whoever. But also that there is, if, if, you're, if your film, if, you're, if your story world has no language, has no dialect, then it has no culture. And I think it's really easy then to sort of fall into these, like, traps of, oh, well, we just didn't, uh, you know, we just didn't have any roles that were this kind of, you know, this sort of actor was necessary or anything like that. Right. And I kind of feel like, um, yeah, just this overall trend towards, and I think part of it is business-driven, making movies sort of international release friendly, uh, so you don't have to deal with a lot of, like, translation issues. Yeah. Uh, But... I think it also contributes to this idea that there's this bland monoculture that exists in films because, look, they're all just people to look at who we find attractive by conventional standards. Monochrome in that they are all fucking white. Like, completely. I don't know. It's it's just a thought. about this is like the thing that. The thing that I'm I am surprised about is that there isn't an East Asian character in this hired yeah. specifically so that they could access the East Asian market, which happens again and again. This sort of like diversity by way of like terrible cynicism, like capitalism, capitalist cynicism. Like, oh, all we need to do to become big in Asia oh, is have God. one Asian guy. The, the Chinese characters in The Martian. Uh, uh, Chinese for- character, or not the uh, uh, Donny Donny Yen in um, Rogue in Rogue One, right? Was like explicitly hired because he was a known he was a known entity inside of East Asian markets, uh, which does not take away from the fact that I think he's a good actor in any way, and that I'm glad that he got a role. It just sucks that it's all. It sucks that I mean I've complained before on Waypoint Radio about the fact that it's frustrating that we need to like turn uh representational crumbs into representational feasts Mm -hmm. but like this is the other half of it which is like you know even when we fucking win we win because the a new market demographic has been uh you know uh identified a new a new cut uh can be can be made for uh because we unlock a new a new segment of the market for somebody and it fucking sucks like it's so frustrating because you don't want to push away the win. You don't want to push away the fact that, like, yes, Blade Runner would have been better if it had had Asian characters in it. It would have it would have been more internally consistent, and it would have just been less white. Uh, but also, but also, it would suck if we knew the reason that there were more Asian characters was because it would make uh, Blade Runner twenty forty nine's uh, ability to reach an Asian audience like easier, like, and not just because. <laughs> God. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, At least Blade Runner 2049 assured us that it did not give a fuck about reaching <laughs> the guess, Asian market. Or does that, I mean, this is like, this is the dilemma about late capital is that like late capitalism tells you that no, it's, it's ethical that the market opens up new places for new types of consumers as being a reason to do things. The market is what's going to, is going to make everyone more ethical because once everyone is a, is an equal consumer, once everyone has enough, has, has enough money to buy things from the market, then the market will have to adjust to appeal to them. And it's just like, I don't want racism to be conquered because it increases your fucking bottom line. Like, ah, I don't know. Sorry. We're in it right now. You got me talking for two hours and now I'm about to... (laughs) Those are fucking... Extremely fair points. Like, 
I, I mean, I walked away from this movie with with a similarly gross feeling of, oh, hey, does oh, does that mean my hopes for sci-fi and and you know <laughs> gender equality and sci-fi in the future are actually actually no, things are going to get a lot worse. Like that's really you know instead of having like you know right. you know feeling like oh, oh maybe I could actually be equal with with men in the future. It's it's more like no, I don't look like joy. I don't, I'm not right. like a 70-foot like, woman with a quadruple <laughs> X-sized boobs. Like, I'm not going to make it in the world, you know? Or even just in this world, in this prestige sci-fi film, yeah. right? In this film that theoretically isn't supposed to be appealing to the widest possible audience, that seems like it's free from the constraint. Like, it is a film where, for instance, it does not, it does not give a fuck about traditional Hollywood pacing, yes. right? It has, thrown, God, off, it so has thrown off that stuff. It's so good. It does that stuff so well. And yet, it still fails to have a, a, you know an interesting female protagonist who is treated as a as an agent in her own right. Again, unless we were all missing a love read that that is going to show up in five years and make us all feel silly. Um, <laughs> but like, but but you know, I don't. It, not obviously, anyway, right? Like, there is not obviously a, a a woman protagonist here who is who you can dive into what her thoughts are and and what her uh, what her mental processes are, what she wants separate from some dude. Um, and like it's interesting to see which shackles you can break first, and the answer, you know, part of it is about what the desire of the filmmakers want. Part of it is about the restrictions of film and Hollywood. Uh, I it's frustrating that the ones that seem to be shaken off of first, or the ones that were able to be resisted, were the ones about pacing and about set design and about you know who does the soundtrack and stuff like that and not necessarily even the soundtrack is is compromised in some ways anyway like i think that's the stuff that it's always frustrating to see where which wins get prioritized you know which where you can break away from norms like which norms you're allowed to break versus the ones that you never even think to break or the ones that you don't prioritize because you're you know part of the the kind of ideological superstructure that keeps things the way it is and there's a there's a good motherboard piece on this too, actually. Yes, now that we're, yes. <laughs> since we've been uh, sort of calling out good motherboard pieces on this, it's it's uh, I believe it's titled uh, Blade Runner twenty forty nine is not the film that Dennis uh, Denis sorry uh, Villeneuve yep. we're saying Villeneuve right Villeneuve we're saying Villeneuve Villeneuve I think. Okay. there's a V at the yeah, yeah. Villeneuve. I'm just saying Villeneuve because there is a Canadian race driver named Jack Villeneuve works for me I don't know how to pronounce anything so uh yeah that's it's not the movie he wanted to make that is the the headline uh and it is a really interesting piece that I also don't agree with everything in there necessarily mm-hmm. but uh there there is some interesting evidence not evidence but he's not putting together a case it's just more there are clear uh sort of through lines in his filmmaking, and this movie breaks some of them in some weird and potentially, uh, you know, studio building kinds of ways, and not yeah, uh, yeah. the artist, uh, the artist vision kind of thing. I think one of the things that just bothers me about, like, so at least in Blade Runner, you had like the film is explicitly dealing with the fact there's like a large pool of underpaid, highly skilled, uh, like Asian laborers who are like driving this entire economy, like. Right. To a degree, is the portrayal also racist, and is that meant to like sort of read as this is a fallen society? Uh, it sort of seems like it might be, uh, <laughs> right. but at, this, at, at the same time, like you can sort of read in the movie this this attitude that like the people who are actually doing the work here are not reaping the benefits; they're getting screwed too. Um, I don't know. Like I like again, the movie has some serious flaws. Yep. In uh, twenty forty nine, again six times. Like yeah. 
But in 2049, those people have almost been expunged. Like, right. we see very few people from that. Like the, we see very few of the 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 people we the sort of the the under the underclass merchant class uh, that we yeah. saw in like Blade Runner, uh, you know, a lot of uh, East Asians, South Asians, they've all been sort of disappeared from this world. And what we have is a very very white a white story about uh, exploitation and, and class and uh, you know metaphors for race. But what concerns me a great deal about like failing to Danielle, you had a great line today where, like, if you're going to include a trope or not at a trope, you also have to comment on it. Yeah. Or, or else and you're just propagating you, that trope. Yeah. Right. And I think that's really important. I think this is one of the things that 2049 ends up failing to do a little bit. It ends up having this very... We will have this conversation about class relations and value among ourselves. And there's a really heavily implied, like, who us and we are. Right, right, right. right and yeah. yes. the absence of other, like, actors and cultures in this movie say a lot. And that, like, for me, I think the thing that's going to bother me about this film, at, like, for, for years to come, like, it will, you know, Blade Runner, it has this huge asterisk next next to it, uh, you know, in, in my appreciation. Uh, this is going to be the one that I think bothers me for years to come, which is that it very much does sort of seem like, look... We'll get around to your issues. But this is a conversation. <laughs> well, it's like, it's a conversation about your issues. You're just not part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like, oh, we're going we're gonna to have this conversation with, with white dudes uh, about the state of women in the future. <laughs> but you're represented by, by metaphor. About, Congratulations. Right, about an underclass of, uh, of uh, you know, a racial underclass who does all of the manual labor. And again, like, this occurs, this, is, this film comes out in a context in which the President of the United States has bragged about sexual assault uh, in which the President of the United States uh, won partially on a promise of of, uh, you know, enhancing the, the racial uh, divide that's already established in America. Um, like, it, it is a time to have those conversations. I'm thrilled that Blade Runner wants to have them. I'm so much happier that I wanted, that I saw that the film that is interested in a racial underclass, that is interested in the depiction of sex workers and the place of sex work and the place of, of like, women, but also could have done with you know, Gosling being, you know, uh, uh, you know, Hispanic or, or, you know, Latinx descent, uh, and, and maybe having, uh, uh, one of the women have scenes that are not just about either killing people or like making a dude happy. Um, again, I think, I think that that, that is a, a, a boiling down. Like I do think that a closer read would see, you know, there are things that the Lieutenant does that are about other stuff. There are things that love is doing that are for herself. Um, but there's different, there's a difference between that and then having like, a lens character who you stick with and whose uh, interiority you get access to the way you get access to K's that would have made this a film that maybe holds up better in, you know, in five years when we're, we're trying to have that conversation in a bigger way. Right. Like, I think that it's fair to, to take a look at this, to take a look at a film like, you know, obviously Black Panther is not out yet. Who knows how Black Panther does all said. Um, but like, there's part of me that as a younger person, would have probably seen a film like Blade Runner 2049 than seen a film like Black Panther and said, Blade, 40, Blade Runner 2049 is digging into issues. It's, it's dealing deeply with the philosophy of being, the philosophy of, of personhood. And I think it is doing those things. And then said, like, and, and Black Panther is probably going to be a 
uh, you know, a kind of empty Marvel action film. And, like, it's going to have cool set design and great costumes, but, like, it's not going to do anything that blows me away. Um, more and more, I'm more towards the I'm more towards the center in which I have room in my life for both of those things, where I don't need to denigrate this, the latter, which can be just, a you know, a black uh, director shot this film filled with black men and women, black people who are on the the cover. Like there are so many black women on the poster for Black Panther and they all seem to have interesting roles. Um, I will see who knows again how that film, how that film does in the end. But like, I, I think that it's a fair criticism sometimes to say what we need is not just meditations on the problems of the world. We need people who are impacted by those problems to be given the platform to actually address them, um, to tell their own stories, to tell what, like, what does Blade Runner 2049 look like if it is made by a woman director, if it's made by a person of color, if it's made by someone of, of East Asian descent instead of uh, by someone of French descent? Like, I, you know, actually, I don't, I don't know uh, Villeneuve's entire background, right? Is he French-Canadian? Okay. Um, so, like, who knows? But, like, that to me is is an interesting question to at least ask and to and to think through what does Blade Runner 2079 look like if it's made by you know a black woman by a trans woman uh, if it's made by someone who if it's made algorithmically like there are all sorts of questions that we can ask uh, you know about what that looks like but in the here and now what I'd like to see more of is just what you know ways to to enable the people who are talked about in in our most prestigious films to have the ability to talk themselves right um we don't need to live in a world in which you know Ava DuVernay is a kid in San Diego right I want Ava DuVernay and and other great black filmmakers, uh, other filmmakers of color, other women filmmakers to be given the platform of a movie like a Blade Runner so that they can try to dig into this stuff, too. Like, and I bet you they fuck up also here and there, you know, sure. like everybody does. Uh, yeah. Everybody does. So so that's that's my like maybe the, the final takeaway for me. What about what about y'all? Do you have like, as you look back on it now, two hours and two hours and a billion minutes in, <laughs> two hours and twenty six minutes in? What is your final takeaway for this spoiler cast? Go ahead, Rob. In ten years or so, I'll probably have a better idea of what I really think of this movie. Yeah. Uh, ten years and God knows how many how many viewings. Um, I think the. With all these caveats, and, and, and they're significant, but I can still love something in spite of having pretty massive reservations uh, about uh, some aspects of it. I genuinely enjoyed this film. I think it left, like, again, obviously, uh, there's been a lot to chew on, and there are so few, uh, like, major release, big budget films that leave you with a lot of questions and a lot of things that you're, like, eager to sit down and talk to your friends about for two, three hours. Uh, that in itself is a relief. Is a relief, and I think the thing that the thing I said on the way out of the theater was like, you know, that was a movie ass movie. <laughs> Which, <laughs> yeah, wh what I mean is like, there are so few films that come out that feel like they really leverage the power of film and the experience of going to the cinema and like just right. dedicating all your attention to that screen and those images and those sounds for two, three hours. There's so few films that make that both feel like the movie is demanding that of you, that it compels it of you. And also at the end of it, you feel like rewarded for having made that commitment. 
Right. Uh, and it's a hallmark of a lot of great cinema. I think there there used to be a lot more of it coming out of Hollywood. There's not much of it now. A lot of it is meant to be, you know, sort of, uh, you know, disposable. It's meant to entertain you, uh, but not demand too much. It was a relief to have three hours of really intense film going past in the blink of an eye, where yeah. I just felt that disoriented uh, through the looking glass feeling when the credits roll because it's I thought it was just getting warmed up and I've just <laughs> had this entire experience and so I still for all my caveats I treasure that and I treasure 2049 for giving me that I uh I have, I have I will keep it short I will say that when I saw this movie, I saw it with my parents, and they are a fucking delight to watch movies with, because they are hilarious, <laughs> and they don't really hold back. At the very end of the movie, my dad was like, I don't know what I saw. And my mom yeah. was like, so was he a replicant or not? That's what I was watching the whole time. Was he a replicant or not? <laughs> now, I, I think I'm going to end up uh, feeling very similar to my feelings on Prometheus with this movie. And I actually really liked Prometheus. I think there's a really great movie in Prometheus, yeah. it just it wasn't necessarily what came out in theaters or what came out of, of the second draft of the script, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I do really genuinely love and appreciate, uh, this is going to mirror a lot of what you're saying, Rob, but when a sci-fi movie with a giant, massive, hulking budget dares to be at least a little weird and a little bit, yeah. uh, not, I wouldn't say experimental, that's not, that's not how far we're going here, but a little weird. And a little bit interesting and to ask interesting questions and to, even if I, I, I really do think it dropped the ball uh, on race and gender here um, and gender identity. I do think it dropped the ball on those things, but I like that it at least in, in some sense tried to raise some interesting questions. And I really did enjoy the movie, even if it, it may have fallen short for me in some places. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough because I think what ends up happening is when it succeeds on most films fail uh, when it comes to gender yes. and race. Yes, right. Like, <laughs> well, most films so like fail so hard that it never even occurs to you exactly. to really consider it. Right. Exactly. I mean, this is like uh, I think about I think about in the in the the Democratic primaries uh, leading into the 2016 election, how harshly. Black Lives Matter critiqued uh, Bernie Sanders, and I like 100% was like, yeah, I want to critique Bernie Sanders, even though I'm someone who was supporting Sanders at the time. And when people were like, well, why would you do that instead? Like, why aren't you crit uh, criticizing Hillary Clinton? I was like, I have feelings about Hillary Clinton and race already, sir. <laughs> like, I do not, my guy, I am not going to win Hillary Clinton over. I'm not going to push Hillary Clinton into into a position where I can imagine her being better on on race, actually. Like, uh, you know, uh, and I have higher hopes that uh, that in general, the movement beyond Sanders could get pushed into a place where it has to take race seriously. Like, I want to have that conversation in this space because I want it to change. And when I think about a film like this, the reason that I think all of us want to critique its handling on identity is because it succeeds elsewhere in ways that we think it it proves that it's engaged. It isn't another bad like summer blockbuster. Like it isn't another bad is even a strong word. It, it isn't. It isn't just trying to be a few hours we spend in the dark or, together. Or, 
yeah less like considered I, I, maybe is the less considered way to put is it. yeah totally totally less considered about its content specifically right like i think a lot of summer blockbusters are deeply considered when it comes to like getting adrenaline pumping and making you have a good time with your friends like all of that takes a lot of consideration and effort right like i've we had i don't know if you remember this danielle but like months ago uh our our producer or our at the time podcast producer tim barnes talked about how little he thought george lucas thought about um, episode one, Phantom Menace. <laughs> yeah. And for me, I'm like, are you kidding me? I bet you that dude thought really hard about Phantom Menace. <laughs> for 20 thinking years. hard and putting <laughs> yeah, 20 years worth of thinking about Phantom Menace. Yeah. I don't think that thinking hard or working hard generates good art. Like, it, I don't think there's a one to one connection between I put in the work and then it comes out and is good. Like, sometimes you get on a wild goose chase. Sometimes you convince yourself that the thing you need to do is put in 100 hours of work and to Jar Jar Binks. You don't. <laughs> you don't need to do it. That's not the right way forward, Georgie. Um, and, and, but, but, but when you have this type of movie that does want to say something and does want to tackle, you know, issues about personhood, issues about, about free will and agency, um, and, and the environment, of course, the environment is here. We didn't talk about it. Of course, the environment is here again, right? (laughs) Um, about fleeing earth and going to the stars versus staying here and making it better. Like all of that is here. You say like, fuck you you didn't do the one thing right like come on like, you would ah you were the chosen one anakin like you were supposed to do it and you didn't uh and i think that that's fair like i think it's fair to to, to hold not even necessarily to a higher standard but like to address to address the problems that become so much more apparent when you've put in the work everywhere else and i have not just put in the work but have, have delivered in other places yeah. Oh, I'm out of energy. I'm going to go <laughs> eat dinner. I'm, I'm going to a Halloween party. We're recording this Ooh. on Halloween. Wait, didn't you have to go an hour ago? That's all right. Shit. This was, Danielle. This was great. Danielle. This is exciting Danielle. and good. We did, we did, are you sure we did not just tank your night? No. God, I've already in my costume. I've been in my costume this entire oh time. Oh, my God. What's your... your what's okay, your hold on. I'm going Paint as a gorgeous, a gorgeous lady of wrestling. I'm in a wrestling singlet with oh, knee-high socks. Nice. I'm about to do my makeup, and it'll be great. That'll be rad. Congratulations. <laughs> it's a good costume. Thank you. Thank Rob, you. what's your Halloween costume today? Um, blue jeans, black t-shirt. I'm Steve Jobs. <laughs> oh, you're Steve Jobs. Uh, yeah. Um, Talking about and, Silicon uh, Valley. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, I am. I don't have any Halloween plans tonight, so no one will see me out, so I'll be the black people in Blade Runner. <laughs> uh, that's rude. That's rude. Oh, uh, and after all those nice things you just said, <laughs> felt, no. I, 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 what, what would I be this year? Um, I don't have a the good Halloween. I haven't done Halloween in Is years. That... I would never in my fucking life will I be the woke gamer. <laughs> Fuck. Shout outs to whoever made the woke gamer Twitter account. That's the most depressing thing I've ever seen. So good. It's so good. It's so. Oh God. <sighs> all right. I think it's gonna do it for us as always. People sent in letters and questions. Uh, those oh questions God, got answered. Up. No, we didn't. I've read those questions. Those questions got answered. I promise. Uh, yeah. If they didn't, somebody was like, what's a good game that feels like Blade Runner? There's a Blade Runner game. You should go play that. That game's really good. Um, that's all I'm going to say. I'm Austin Walker. Find me on Twitter at Austin underscore Walker. Where can people find you, Danielle? At Danielle R.I. And at this Halloween and party. This Rob Zachney, what about party. you? Uh, living a better life on the off-world colony. <laughs> Okay, good. Perfect. I'm glad you got out. I'm glad you got out. Uh, Earth's in me forever, y'all. But, uh, all right, uh, that's going to do it for us. As always, you can find us on Twitter at twitter.com slash waypoint, at waypointadvice.com, on Facebook at facebook.com slash waypointvice. Talk to us about this over at discourse.zone, the the second best forum on the internet (laughs) 
after after Roger Deakins. Very close second. Roger Deakins. We'll just end on a Roger Deakins quote here. He says, We, or most certainly I, was not trying to emulate the original film or run away from it either. Denis envisioned a particular world that was primarily gray and cold, and I lit it in a way that I felt reflected that overall idea. With the Wallace interiors, I wanted to reflect the nature of the character and also contrast the world outside. Our treatment of Vegas came from a desire to portray that city as having suffered another calamitous climactic event and was inspired by a real world a real world event in Sydney, Australia a few years ago. The new film has far fewer scenes in L.A., in the L.A. city streets, which also contrasted from the first film. Blade Runner 2049 was never intended to mimic the same bustling, colorful street life of the previous film. Then he envisioned another look, one that was sparsely populated and drowning in pollution, fog, and snow. You can find that over at RogerDeacons.com. Uh, shout out to Bone for listening to use the track Miss You off the EP Pale Machine. You can find out more about that at waypoint.zone slash B-O-E-N. Danielle, what do we say? Be good and be good at it. Peace. And sorry about the ad placements. <laughs> there, yeah, thank you. Yes, actually, yeah. who even knows? There could be a thousand ad placements. <laughs> oh, God. No one knows. Nobody Are you guys knows. actually talking about Blade Runner on this show? Uh. Uh, for their ads? Uh, who could say? All right. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus.